Welcome to episode 17 of the Hike or Die Outdoor Adventure Podcast. We have a very special guest today who goes by the name of Andy Solushi. Pretty hard to pronounce. So he also goes by the name of Andy Sloz or Sloshy. We've just got off the phone to him. It's an absolutely fantastic episode coming at you about all his adventures. Craig, can I give you one piece of advice? Mm-hmm. If you ever pick up your phone and it's Andy calling and he asks you to go on an adventure with him, you just hang up the phone. You don't even engage. You got it? <laughs> got it. Good. Music. Oh, welcome back, guys. It's good to be here. Episode number 17. We're still still clicking over the numbers, Craig. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, very good. 17. All right. I'm feeling very relaxed. Sorry. Am I too relaxed? Let, mm. me, let me get the housekeeping done. <clears throat> Thanks very much to sponsors of the podcast, Rios Gear, suppliers of polarized floating sunglasses, that also look pretty cool. Topo Maps Plus, go deeper into the backcountry. Caribbee.com, makers of very fine packs and all other sorts of things. And also Bluey Merino, suppliers of, how would you say, Merino base layers? Mm-hmm. I guess the uh, secret's in the name. Yep. <laughs> all right, mate, news. Hit me. Let's yes. hear it. Hit you? Mate, I'm, I'm doing all right. I've what been, have you done since last podcast? Oh, I've actually been I've actually been pretty sick, everyone in the house. Oh, yeah, that's right. You I remember, remember you I telling texted me. you that and said, bit miserable. I'm um, feeling better now. I hope I don't, you know, I hope I don't have a coughing fit right now. But um, so as a result, though, um, I had to reduce my number of uh, fitness exercise running. Yeah, I was going to ask you about you running. I was doing heaps of running. But I'll tell you, I actually um, on Friday did 10K, so I feel good about oh, that. Oh, wow. Yeah, I hit it. Um, and it hurt a lot more than I remember doing it. <laughs> Do you mind if I ask um, publicly oh. what the time was? Oh, shit. Um, you don't have to answer. Was it on the road? It was, so from here down to the park... And then it involved the run back up too. Yep. So there's a bit of a hill on the way back. And I think um, 56 or something. Oh, mate. Just a walking pace. Lightning fast. No. <laughs> no. That's <laughs> quicker than I can do it on the trail, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, no, it's pretty easy just down there on the, on the, on the, um, along the creek. <clears throat> now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you out now. Okay. You, you realize that, don't you? What do you mean? Because I asked you on the last podcast if you'd do me a favor and try something. And uh, I'm wondering if you've done it. All the listeners here are thinking, yes, I know what you said you were going to do, Craig. Oh, man, this happens to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sick of this. I'm going to have to start writing things down, not just on my hand either. Uh, I, I asked you or uh, suggested that if you went down the park or somewhere, 
safe with grass and actually took your shoes off and went for a bit of a jog oh, around. Oh, you oval. Did. did. And and read Born to Run. Well, I didn't. That wasn't. I don't think I stipulated you had to do that. But that's where that idea came from. Yeah, but I did say to you, "Would you do me a favor?" And you said, "Yes, yes, I will, Tom." And if I don't do it, I'll give you fifty dollars. Do you remember that part? <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, yeah. But I said that. But no, I haven't. Um, well, actually, I've really, I've only been running a few times since I was. We've been sick. I'm going to let you off. You've been sick. I've been on the down, but um, yeah, no, I will. Okay, I'll look into that. I'm, um, I'm back to it, so I'll, I'll give it a go. So I'm not one to just, uh, how would you say it? Suggest something that. I'm not trying myself. I went for a big walk, I think it was 4Ks the other day along the trail that I normally run along. And when I got to the start of the trail, actually, I don't even think I did. I was going to say, I think I just got out of the car. I had a pair of thongs on. Um, I better frame that. (laughs) In Australia, we call flip-flops thongs. I think I've had to explain this before. I wasn't wearing some um, revealing underwear. That's what I'm trying to say. I was wearing footwear, not that particular time, at least not visible to the public. I Yeah, so I got out of the car. The point of this long and boring story is I walked um, uh, about three kilometers or so on the trail, jogged here and there, but just barefoot. It was pretty cool. Hmm. There was... um, I was, I was with my two eldest boys and as soon as I did that, of course, off their shoes come and they didn't want to wear shoes and it was about halfway through, my eldest boy said to me, wow, running with shoes is just so, so boring. <laughs> 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 I just thought that was awesome. He, he just loved it. Summed up everything. Oh, absolutely loved it. Mm. They 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 kept talking about everything that I was kind of thinking. And they were saying, "Oh, it's so good to feel the ground and the the warm parts of the sand and the cold parts and and all that sort of stuff." So, mm. yeah, I'm going to start doing more of it. I think just connecting, taking that piece of rubber out from beneath the ground and yourself, and mm. that's good. Yes, or similarly, we got. I took the kids down to the creek and we um, we walked around in the water, and you know you walk along the side of a creek so many times, but actually getting in with the kids up to your knees, and you know we had some little nets and they were catching stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was great catching fun. Lunch. I think they they really loved that, and that's all part of getting outdoors, eh? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Mm. Getting dirty. I think we. Shoes off, get dirty. Yeah, we tend to, as we get older, steer away from getting dirty and make sure you don't do this and don't dirty the clothes and shoes or whatever. But we really just become old grandmas, don't we? Mm-hmm. I, because I haven't been wearing shoes as much, my blister, the great blister from the last hike we the did. almighty blister. Yeah, so it's gone really well. Um it's kind of filled back out from the inside Mm. and it's good. I think it's going to be just fine. Mm. I I think that once it fully, fully heals, um, it's be good as new. In fact, I would argue that it'd be better than it was prior to the hike. I was strangely interested to hear that story because yeah, it looked pretty nasty. 
Yeah, it was full on. I mean, that was a big hole there, especially mm. after I cut it all out. <laughs> yeah. Geez. But I think it was the best thing I could have done. Oh, it's really good now. Oh, well, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was... <laughs> I was wondering if that was just going to be like that forever then. You know, like it would have a... <laughs> Down to the bone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it healed up. Yeah, well, it's on its way. It's I'd say 95% there. Good. There's just a few hard bits around the edge that I think will just eventually wear themselves off. Because I'm not going to mention that I've never had a blister. Because <laughs> as soon as you do that... Mate, I did that once and now I've had a blister. Can't believe it. Yeah. Yeah, still. Mm. No, I... I I can honestly say I know the point at which I um, I deserve to get that. I was too lazy. I changed the style of socks and was very, very lazy with tying up my boots, mm. only sort of tying them around the top of the ankle instead of spending the extra two minutes and cinching it in all the way up from the bottom. So my foot was just sliding around all day on that steep terrain and yeah, you get what you, you reap what you sow. Uh, I've got the, I had the kettlebells back out lately. That's been really good gearing up for this, um, 55 kilometer hike, which is in two weekends time. Yeah. It's getting close. Um, and yeah. It's it's gonna be weird hiking without a pack. Weird, but without a pack. Well, it's only gonna be a day pack because yeah, we we don't actually camp out. We do this massive um, loop, and then the next day we do a slightly shorter. Oh, so you go home section. in the afternoon? Well, not home. You go to um, some accommodation somewhere out near the trail. So, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's a two day thing, but you sort of got accommodation. Yeah, cool. That's right. Yeah, you go back to some kind of um, accommodation in between, which is included in the entry fee and everything. With um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting because that also means that you're kind of forced to hang out with the other team and other hikers, and you know it'll be interesting. I always enjoy, you know, sparking up a chat with with people with. Um, similar interests and obviously we're all there for the same reason so that should be pretty cool yeah i'm thinking of maybe sneaking my little gopro along i don't want to get too wrapped up in filming or taking photographs but the gopro 7 on the last couple of trips has just been so easy to use and that i think i'm just going to take it in my pocket and just blast a few photos out and a bit of video here and there. Yeah, I think I think those guys would love that. You do that, mate. Yeah, yeah, they'd, they'd probably like to have a few photos and stuff and not just from an iPhone. Yeah, no, I was going to ask you if you were going to do a bit of footage for them because it's for a good cause. Yeah, not officially, but hmm. I just thought I'd grab it along the way. Let's see how we go. Okay. Um, I've also been uh, shooting my bow again, getting back into the archery. And made a few adjustments to my bow and I'm really bad again. Not really bad, just not where I used to be. So I kind of haven't really found that, that Zen yet. So, um, it's good. Um, it's good to be back into it and flinging some arrows in the backyard. I will continue to do that <clears throat> if I've got time amongst throwing axes and other stuff. I'm a busy man. <laughs> busy, busy man. <laughs> the crazy warrior. 
That's awesome. Hey, I thought of, um, well, I think we briefly touched on this in a conversation a couple of weeks back, off air, that is. Uh, and I just love dropping stuff on you without telling you anything about what I'm doing because it just it's just one of my simple pleasures in life to spring things on you mm. in the podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It happens so much. It's like it's, it's like we've got this script and we pretend like um, it's just casual. No, it's quite the opposite. <laughs> it's quite the opposite. Anyway, tell me what's happening next. Well, I was scrolling through, surfing the net, as they say, and I stumbled across um, a few new bits of gear and I thought we did talk about dropping a gear segment in um, – at some point, okay. and I thought maybe maybe it's not official. Maybe it is official, but I thought that we could just do a bit of gear talk. S- stuff you're looking at at the moment. Look, it's not stuff that I'm probably not going to purchase it. I'd oh, say wow. Probably not at all, but wow. if, wow, things does get it, changed. Does it, does it qualify it? No, it does qualify because if I had... Um, cash just sitting on the table and I had nowhere to spend it, I'd probably buy these things. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's been the kind of like a wish list. Yeah. But the reason I want to talk about it is because I think that there's people, you know, wanting suggestions and a lot of people actually say you need to talk more about gear. Actually, I'd like to hear you talk about it because I've taken your advice several times and it's been <laughs> mostly good. Mostly that. good. Yeah, that, that's good. Thank you. I'll take right. that as a compliment. So okay. if you've been doing your research, um, let us know what you're thinking. I'll tell you some things I've just um, okay. Very gone, good. gone to. Well, um, there's been a couple of new blades, a couple of new knives. It's something we don't talk about enough because you can't have mm-hmm. enough knives and you can't talk enough so about knives. That's right. Um, they are a tool for uh, enjoying whilst you are on the trail. So, these are both Gerber and they both just happen to pop up. So, um, Gerber reduced, no, they did not reduce anything, produced a new knife. That's a picture of it there, Craig, that top one. It's called the the Quadrant. It's a folder and it has the appearance of like one of those sort of like a straight cut razor. It's kind of in that ballpark. It's got a beautiful bamboo handle. Um, They've deliberately left a bit of um, patina on the metal around here and they've deliberately done a rough um, grind on the blade as well. It looks pretty tough. It looks pretty cool. Mm. I do like the look of it and the fact that it's a neat little folder. I think Mm. it's a beautiful little knife. So... I'll put links to that in the show notes. It's it's um that's the sort of knife you just have as an everyday carry. You just have it in your okay. in your pocket. I, I do like, like that knife. I think it might also come with a different color um, scales on the handle, but uh, the bamboo just really appealed to me just because it's natural. Yeah, I haven't seen anything like that. Yeah, it's it's cool, eh? This other knife they've released recently is called the Tri Tip. That thing's weird. It's it's like a mini cleaver. Yep. Um, and well, yeah, it does look like a cleaver, 
Well, what's cool about it is it has a chisel point at the front, so you can kind of use it to gouge things or shave things or, you know, do little tasks around the campsite. But you've also got that traditional blade at the bottom. And then you've got, as the name would suggest, three tips to kind of work with there. I just thought it was a cool looking knife and uh, interesting little thing. Little cleaver. Little cleaver. Now, because I'm not um, against axes, uh, Columbia River Knife and Tool, CRKT, have bought out this thing called the Simbri. That's the only way I can think of pronouncing it. C-I-M-B-R-I, axe. Now, it's based on a medieval sort of axe, so it has quite a substantially longer handle, uh, straight timber handle, and a different shape head to what you'd expect on a, a hatchet or a tomahawk. And I like it. I just thought it was was different and I really like the timber handle, not going to this synthetic sort of stuff all the time. And I think you you get some real nice action with that. What's interesting is the handle's actually um, square. So it's not a round handle. Okay, the whole handle's pretty much square. Yeah, yep. so if you look at it from the end, it's almost square with round, obviously rounded edges, so it doesn't hurt your hands and whatever. But yep. it's full length? Like, you know how when, it's, you, when you go and chop some wood I'd for say you... It's, no, 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 no. I wouldn't say it's that, but I'd say it's <coughs> twice the length. That handle would be twice the length of a, of tomahawk. a typical tomahawk. So you can really get that that swing and the leverage and, uh, you know, do some... The way that blade is, you can even hold it up on the back there and even do some minor carving and, you know, sharpening tent pegs or stakes or whatever with that in your hand. What I think they could have maybe, just if I want to be really critical, what they could have done is made the opening round and the handle round so that if you were in the field and you broke, somehow broke that handle, then you would have been able to lop a branch off a tree, carve it up a little bit with your <coughs> knife and then bang it back down into that head there. And yeah. I don't know. Maybe it would still work with You'd a round branch. Maybe it would still work. There. Yeah, you probably could still, to be honest, shove it in. But yeah, I, thought, yeah, I thought that was something different. Uh, it definitely looks different. Now, the last thing I'm going to mention is not a knife or an axe. It's a survival kit. Sorry, that's incorrect. It's a first aid kit. Okay. And it's made by vsslgear.com. And what is pretty cool about this stuff is they are, it comes in a metal tube. You see that, Craig, in that image? Yep. So... And it has a cap on each end and one end's got a compass. I'm not a real big fan of that. But the other end has a little LED light and then it's jam-packed with um, all sorts of stuff. The reason I like it is it's like an aluminium pipe, really. It looks like a pipe bomb. <laughs> and so it's indestructible. And because it's round, like a tube, I think you could slide it anywhere in your pack you liked, in a side pocket or whatever. Mm. or even have it up in the top of your pack. You could obviously add to that 
first aid kit or remove stuff as you see fit. And what's really cool, if you go and click on the link that I'm going to leave there, if you go to their main website, you can actually build your own canister. So you can start from with nothing and you can choose the color of the pipe, mm -hmm. so the tube, the metal tube. You can choose if you just want a standard cap. So if you don't like that compass, you just get a standard cap that screws on, one mm -hmm. with a carabiner, a loop and whatnot. You can change out the base if you don't want the torch there. You could change that to a solid base. You basically mix and match. And then as you go through, you can add other things back in and obviously add your own things. But And choose different colors. It was really cool. You just build your own kind of little kit. What I thought the, you would really like. The Sorry. Co contents in, uh, sort of interchangeable or are they fixed? Yeah, no, no. The content. This is fixed if you just went and purchased the first aid kit. That's what you get. But if you want to build your own, I think you can add the first aid stuff to Contents it. Contents can be... Yeah, I think so. Maybe. Um, That's cool. But you'll really like one of them is, um, is a flask. <laughs> you can build a flask and it comes with a little collapsible shot glass. And you can... Yeah, I thought you'd really like Like an that. alcohol flask? Uh, yeah, yeah, alcohol flask. Well, I was going to say, does that hold water though? That Would that hold mm. water? My assumption is that it would... Well, put it this way, it's watertight. So it has like little, it. it's waterproof. I think it's got O-rings in each. And it's lightweight. End. I like it. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. It, it's, um, it's bright red, this particular one we're looking at. The first aid one comes bright red. You can't miss it. It's one of those things that you start at a hike, you just hold that up and say, right, everyone, this is the first aid kit. I'm putting it in the side of my pack. That's where you go if you need it. So yeah, I thought that was a pretty cool piece of kit, the way they'd package that up. What do you got, my friend? You got something to add? I've just landed um, at home here, my first pair of trekking poles. Oh, really? Yes, I've taken the plunge to work out how to use them properly. And, um, you know, I broke mine ages ago. Yeah. And um, realized that I just didn't enjoy using them. Well, wow, it's so funny that we've had this <clears> chat. <throat> and it's so funny that you introduced me to hiking poles that's right, yeah. Way, way back. You let me borrow one for a couple of hours, just one, I think. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. I think I could get to know this. And then, uh, you know, once I got my own pair and learned how to use them properly, they're just epic. So I can't believe that it's coming full circle. Yeah, well, just since the last um, trip we did the main range and I, I couldn't, I couldn't um, keep my footing in these new boots I was wearing, it just I didn't feel confident, and I I just watched you guys get around with your poles, and I just thought, bugger it, it's about time I learn how to use them properly, because I realised that you you can just drop them and use your hands, and you know they they're still accessible, and yep. it's just a technique that you have to learn, and I I've never learned that, I've never um, really achieved any sort of so any sort of you know mastery of it so i'm going to attempt to do that and i've got some good some good ones i think so yeah that's good these mountain designs there i just looked it up a tread carbon trekking pole <clears throat> oh you did end up getting the carbon ones yep oh good job only because they're Jealous. so light they're only 350 grams oh it? wow that's incredible it's next to nothing yeah that's cool definitely so, something I'm even if they just and that's why i just if, if i'm gonna carry them and maybe not use them yeah 
I want it to be really light. Yeah, fair enough. Just going to put them on the pack. and Yeah, I have. There's been a couple of times I haven't used it on a really well-graded track, but for the most part, I'll, I'll get them out. And I have been thinking for, oh, to be honest, it's been years about putting together a, a kind of a tutorial video on hiking poles and how to use them because there's a few out there and I've got my own opinions on, you know, ways to use them to get the most out of them mm -hmm. after using them for years and what to do and what not to do. So quick must have apparently, do you agree? Is those quick lock, uh, quick lock. What am I, what am I trying to say? Yeah, I would say not, after, not a twist, not a twist lock, but yeah, an actual yeah. clamp. I'd say after years and years, I've now landed on a, a pair that has the clamp. Clamps, yeah. The accuracy you can get in adjusting them and the speed at which you can adjust them oh, yeah. just doesn't even compare. Yeah. And particularly like if you've got to use them in a tent or something, just being able That's to exactly right. not have to twist something yeah. sounds like So I do use like mine in the top tent notch, which yep. comes with no upright poles. So you must take hiking poles uh, with you and to be able to reach your hand up inside the fly, undo that clip, push it up until it's nice and taut and then just flick the clip back over with your thumb and let go, job yep. done. It was very different to when I used to have the twist tighten ones and I'd have, have to get two hands up behind the fly and try and negotiate that. So yeah. Good and, stuff, mate. And do you want to know what else just landed at my front door? Oh my goodness! I'm talking about stuff that I I wish I had, and you're just you're talking about stuff that's turning up. What's what is it? Tell me. I just can't wait to use it again. It's the Optimus Crux Weekend. What? Yeah. Did you just get another one? I did. The same thing. Same thing. You know what? If there's ever a uh, like that's a TV commercial. <laughs> What do you mean? What I'm saying is if you used a piece of gear yeah. for years, how long have seven you had years, that? Seven, seven years. I don't know, something like that. And then... It started to wear out. It started to be difficult to open and close. Yeah, yeah, mine's starting to do And that. the bottom is just a little bit perished um, and it was on sale and I bought it. Nice. Same, so just my, replaced My point it. is if you... That's exactly right. If you're using a piece of gear and then... When it's time to get a new piece, you just go out and buy exactly the same thing. I think that's an incredible testament to the product itself. Mm. They should be absolutely mm -hmm. over the moon that you've just gone and done that. Yep, it's like the Salomon. So I'm on my second pair of um, hiking boots and my second pair of trail runners with them. And there is no decision when the next pair wear out, I don't have to make a decision. Mm -hmm. I just go look it up, get the same size, order them, put them on and walk. Because I don't see a point in in trying anything new in some respects, in other respects. I'd, there's some parts of my hiking kit that I don't think are quite where I want them to be yet. But then there's other parts that I just won't even bother changing ever. Hmm. Yeah, that's why I wanted to say it, is that I've um, just just got exactly what we had before. I think I'm you know, going to be super happy to use it in 
like you've had yours for that long too. Yeah, exactly. It'd be yeah. nice to get a new one, eh? Like just to yeah, get one day. Yeah. That. I can't see myself. You don't need to yet. No, not yet. I'll leave it for um, another couple of years. Like I think something would have to actually break or, yeah, I don't know. But it'd be nice to have a backup as well. Like the boys are uh, not far off hiking themselves. So it'd be mm-hmm. nice to have a stove that I don't have to worry about because it's not brand new and shiny mm-hmm. and they can use that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. That's cool, man. I can't believe you. It's well, it's um, that. it's my birthday month, so oh. <laughs> it, it, I'm not actually allowed to touch it yet. <clears throat> oh, getting, really? It's getting wrapped up. <laughs> 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 yes, I think the children will be getting me these lovely gifts. Oh, wow. How did they know? <laughs> <laughs> you just go through the whole order on the website and then say, hey, kid, come here. <laughs> Click on that. It says pay now. <laughs> Yeah. Thanks. You just got me my present. (laughs) Kind of what happened. Uh, Well, it's time, mate. It is time. And this this name just keeps growing. Now it's Tom's Magical Mystery Media Mashup. It's it's getting longer and insane. And I'm cool with that. (laughs) Yeah, it's just getting big. I'm just adding to it. All right. Yeah. Let's do it. Because some people said they liked that it was a mystery mashup, but then... Some people said, oh, I love how it's magical. I thought, well, let's throw it all in. All right. I finished a book. What is it? It's called Skyrunner by Emily Forsberg. She is a uh, Swedish trail running champion and ski mountaineering champion where they kind of do that cross-country skiing and run bits and carry their skis and then ski down and stuff. Now, that was a birthday present for me, actually. And it's, she, if I've told you about Killian Jornet, I think would probably be how you pronounce his name. He's Spanish trail runner, six times Skyrunner World Series champion. Well, this is his partner, um, as in they've got a child together. And he's a absolutely phenomenal photographer and goes to these crazy peaks and takes amazing photos. So he's done the photography for her entire book, Hmm. which makes it just visually compelling. Like even the cover, you can imagine there's there's this massive landscape and this ridgeline and she's just skipping between rocks and midair and you kind of think, wow, that just makes me want to read this book. Yeah, cool. But what's interesting about the book is it doesn't read like, as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh, here we go, it's a biography or it's a, this is how I got into running or whatever. But it's really something quite different, which was pretty refreshing after, you know, just reading so many biographies last year and this year. It's kind of, she has little chunks of, it's broken down into smaller segments and there'll be a chunk about diet, but then there'll be all these recipes, really good recipes. And then there'll be some kind of inspirational parts and then there'll be a bit of life advice and then there'll be a bit of uh, stories about how she got into certain things and how taking chances brought her 
you know, good fortune. And it's really interesting. She talks about training tips and, and yoga. It's almost like an encyclopedia, Mm. the way that it reads. Uh, It was very good. I enjoyed it. And I finished it on, um, I've got to mention, I went to a friend of mine's cabin for uh, five or six days in between podcasts and I've been not had the time to read of late and I woke up one morning and there was three other guys were in the cabin and I slept in my rooftop tent, which by the way, was absolutely epic. Yeah. Oh, mate, I cannot tell you how good it was. Mm. It was so good, man. Like Josh kept telling me, oh, you're, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. Mm-hmm. It came with my car. I didn't specifically buy it, so it just sat on my car. And I thought, oh, I've got to get that thing off sometime. And after talking to him, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll use it down at the cabin and I'll sleep in it just to kind of have a bit of my own space. And the first night I was sold, absolutely sold. The comfort level is phenomenal. Awesome. Easy to set up and all that sort oh, of stuff. So easy. I think yeah, um, I timed it and it took me 13 minutes to get it all done and dusted with my sleeping bag in there and everything. Awesome. But getting back to my point, that was one particular morning I woke up. It was beautiful and warm and the sun was coming down on the rooftop tent. And uh, what I did was um, open the front door of the rooftop tent, which faces the bonnet, if you can imagine that. But because I'm up on the roof racks, I basically just flipped... Flipped it back and had this view of this this whole kind of um, canyon and all these mountains in the background. And I just sat there on the mattress with my feet out in the sun on top of the roof of my car and finished um, this book. I think I read half of the book in two hours just sitting on the roof of my car by myself. Unreal. So yeah, it was the most peaceful um, two hours I've spent in many, many months, I can tell you that. Sweet. Yeah, good times, good book. Links in the show notes. <coughs> oh, Craig's died. having a cough over there. <coughs> I'll continue on. Yeah, sorry. That's all right, mate. Do a couple of shout-outs, hey? Yep. Jammy, I don't know, is it Jamie or Jammy Adventures? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know. It's hard with Instagram. People have funny names and I don't know how I'm meant to pronounce them. Anyway, she is um, a supporter of ours for from way back, but I hadn't heard from her for quite some time. And she said uh, that she keeps forgetting to write to us, but she finally um, she finally did write us a very lovely message. Thank you very much. She says she really enjoys the guests and... You know what she keeps thinking about? And she actually says, I've been thinking about it a lot since the episode you first mentioned it. My um, my training log. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> She's been thinking about this log that I use to do squats and lunges and whatever. It's quite heavy, short, little stout log. You pick it up and stuff, don't you? Like yeah, just pick it up. Throw and, it around. And yeah. Yeah, put it on a shoulder and squat and everything. And and there was a 
episode where we were talking about fitness and stuff and I was talking about this log and I said, oh, it needs a name. And she's, she's been thinking about this for, I don't know, like a year or something. Right. She's come up with it. Uh, oh, she, she had one um, suggestion, which was um, Tim Burr. Oh yeah. 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 Timber. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah Timber. Right. And, uh, I thought that was pretty funny, <laughs> but her explanation was the, the burr is the, probably the sound you make when you're, um, when you're picking it up, you know, like a grunting sound. That doesn't work for me. It's more like a crying, <laughs> wheezing sound, but I do like that. I love that she's so dedicated to can just think about that. Very cool. She's probably done nothing else for the whole year. She's probably wasted her year away um, just concentrating on this, climbing to a cave and meditating on it for 12 months. It sounds like it. it sounds like it. That's a dedicated follower, yep. everybody. Just get that into your head. <laughs> well done. Uh, you know what else she said? Oh, here's very, it's very kind of her. She met a guy. Uh, she was on in Royal National Park. I don't know where that is, but she, she met some guy on the trail and his name was Adam and she recommended our podcast to this Adam guy. Now, I don't know how that conversation came about or if she just walks around hiking trails saying, Hey, Hey, have you, have you listened to this podcast? <laughs> I don't know the context of it, but what I thought was how insane would it be if he actually did end up listening and then he listens to this episode and then he closes the loop and that, writes to us and says, I'm the, I'm the Adam that she's talking about. This is cool. And he gives us the thumbs up and that's inception. Well, right anyway, maybe he doesn't give us the thumbs up. He can just be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, that's inception. The fact that, yeah, yeah it's pretty cool. Mm. Now, one more thing she said that she was closing out right. her message. She says, now go and get that log and remember that all your excuses are lies. Tough. Because <laughs> that's, that's one of the, um, that was a Jocko Willink um, video that yeah. I put on that particular fitness oh, right. episode in the show notes. <clears throat> and yeah, the video is called All Your Excuses Are Lies. And yeah, she's uh, used it back against me. So thanks very much. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> I want to tell you a tick story. Do you want to hear a tick story? Well, I've got a couple there, but go on. Yeah, you, I know you've got your own. But on that note, have your, um, the ticks that bit you last time, have all those sores healed no, up probably? No. No, nah, mine haven't either. Good. I've got two on, the, guess. on <coughs> the base of my scalp and the other one on the other side just behind my ear just keeps kind of, it, it's just not healing up and it's been weeks yeah yeah I, I found i've got yeah three spots that are itchy and still got a bit raised and stuff yeah yeah they get a bit raised and dry and then mm. they kind of yeah it's it's a bit scary mm. i don't know but um anyway so i get this email that's right old-fashioned email not through instagram messenger facebook whatever i got an email from a guy called joel and he's a brisbane boy which is the city that we uh, come from. So mm -hmm. that's pretty nice. Mm -hmm. So this guy called Joel writes me this email and says, I heard you guys talking about 
ticks. Have I got a tick story for you? <laughs> I think I like where this is going. Yeah, you will. Oh, I can't I can't use some of the words he used because he wrote it pretty <laughs> frankly, but I can <laughs> I can go some of the places he went. He meets this girl. They get on really well, they start dating. He there's right at the start of their dating, he says, you know what? You like the outdoors, I like the outdoors. We should go camping. So they go camping together. Very first camping trip, very early on in the relationship. I can't remember where he went. It's irrelevant. So they set up their camp. And there was um, a toilet and shower block at this um, particular campsite. Very posh. But a good option when you're taking a new date Hmm. out into the wilderness. Sounds reasonable. Yep. Running showers and toilets mm. yeah good idea well done well played joel so anyway joel and his uh let's just call her his girlfriend okay because by that stage they were together okay joel and his new girlfriend decide it's um, been a long day of hiking exploring they're going to head to the shower block and have showers in their respective areas joel you know, wanders over there with his towel and, and his clothes and his clean clothes to change into. Anyway, they both go their separate ways. They have their showers. Um, Joel's drying off and realizes that his, his underwear's not there, but his shorts are. And he's like, oh, okay, no big deal. Dries off, chucks on his clean shorts and his shirt and thinks, oh, I'm sure I grabbed him. I must have dropped him along the way. When they're walking back, I think by this stage they had head torches on, when they're walking back to their campsite, sure enough, there's old mate Joel's underwear just there right on the ground in the grass. (coughs) Right. Craig's coughing with anticipation. (coughs) It's killing me here. (laughs) Too much scotch. Yeah. (laughs) So, oh, good stuff. I I haven't lost a pair of underwear. Great. So he, he grabs his... His undies and he goes back to the um, van, mm-hmm. jumps in the van and mm-hmm. throws on his undies. Good as gold. Now, because it's a week ago or so and my memory's terrible, I can't remember if he chucked the undies on straight away or it was the next morning. Again, we're just, that, that's okay. It doesn't matter. But what he re- starts to notice is he gets a bit um, itchy in the nether regions. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, would you call it an, an, a near near an appendage of sorts? Right. Yep. And I, I asked him, by the way, I mean, I, I've said this to you before. I asked people before I tell their stories. So just remember that time I said, <laughs> these poor people spill their hearts out to me and then I just <laughs> blurt it out across the world and tell their most Tom tells story. All. Yeah, yeah. Tom tells all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I've told like you a some... few stories, mate. There, were, <laughs> you have, yeah, there is no clearance, okay? Yeah, there's, yeah, I know there's a couple in particular. <laughs> yeah, that's all good. I'm going to make my own podcast and talk about <laughs> Anyway, this guy said you anyway, can. This guy, Joel said you Joel, can. Joel said I can. You can. Have his permission. Okay. Anyway, he, he uh, gets a bit itchy and he's, oh, what's going on here? And he uh, puts his hand down. And what do you know? 
that he feels a big tick and he's right this is not good this got it this got to come off so he goes up to the new girlfriend and uh yeah basically just drops his pants and uh as he put it put the handbrake on so lifted up the junk and said is there something is there something there and she he said the, the, the look on her on. <laughs> okay go on go on he said the look on her face was just um he said she was mortified, absolutely <laughs> mortified. This new girlfriend's just—he's just revealing all, shoving it in her face, saying, "Get this, there's something on me." And yeah, it turns out, um, yeah, there's this this big bloody tick, and uh, she's pulling. She she gets it in her fingernails. She agrees what a, a good girlfriend would do. She agrees and gets this thing and she's pulling it and pulling it and the skin's stretching out and and he, she keeps pulling it and then eventually it comes loose and and he's all good and everything. And um, so he, he got it off. No harm done. Well, there's harm done to her uh, for having to go through the ordeal, but no harm done to him and his privates. <clears throat> but uh, later on, I can't remember, I don't know if it was on that trip or the next day or later on in their relationship, she said, um, <laughs> I don't know how to put this, when he said, oh, he started pulling down his pants and said, oh, there's, I, got a, I got a tick or something, you got to have a look. She was more concerned that it was on his butt that she thought he was going to turn around and go, oh, there's some tick up my backside. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, wouldn't, that would not be fun. It would not be fun. And then he goes on to say, just for the record, uh, we are still together what? today. Yeah, yeah, still together today. That's the most unbelievable all part. All good. Yeah, all good. And uh, we still go camping and, and take time in the outdoors together. Oh, that's great. It's good, a happy ending. It's like a love story. It that... was like a love story. It had everything that... Uh, a love story would have. You'd get someone like Hugh Grant to play Joel. Yeah. In the in the screenplay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can see it. And then maybe Jennifer Aniston to play play his uh, girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And they go hiking to obviously to Yosemite National Park or something, and and uh, all, all these things happen and. I just want to know, what other sort of emails do you get? Oh, yeah, these are the ones I can only talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Your inbox is scary, man. Yeah, it is. No, on a daily basis, so I, I, I click on things and, oh, wow, that's interesting. I won't be telling that story on the podcast. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for the laugh, mate. I also told that story around the campfire um, two weekends ago with, with my friends at the cabin and and they were in stitches, and I gave them the um, the uh, full version of it. <laughs> <laughs> you, Joel, Joel doesn't know, does he, that you're telling people? No, he knows. He, he does. gave me permission. Joel knows. <laughs> he, said, he said, tell everyone. He said, I don't care if you tell them my surname. And I said, oh, yeah, first name's fine. No, just kidding. That's good. Uh, Hulda, Hilda, Hilda, the young fellow... Um, Oh, yeah, yeah. From Iceland. Yeah, who started hiking. Yeah, started hiking. Yeah. 
Who was on, um, on your match that matchmaking? Yeah, service? that's right. So the funny thing was, he said uh, he liked the um, he loved the cave episode. Yep, thought it was really cool. All oh, right, good. Because um, he he was tried to stay in a cave one time over there, and it was sort of soaking wet. So, but he didn't mention anything about um, getting having uh, available girls get in touch with him. So I don't know. He just didn't mention it at all. I don't know. I didn't want to ask. May not have worked. Don't think it worked. May not have worked. Put the call out again. Don't give up. Yeah. Uh, what have we got here? Last but not least, hiking for HHH. No, this is not the last. Anyway, we've got another binge listener. Listens to us while driving to work. I'm not sure I'd recommend binge listening to our podcast i'm not sure i'd recommend it on the way to work imagine starting your day listening to this oh, could fall asleep put it this way your day can only get better <laughs> <laughs> yeah good thank you anyway thank you thanks for liking this weirdness oh. all right roots to grow this is a 22-year-old girl who is getting ready to solo hike in Colorado. She has solo hiked in New Zealand, I believe. She asked us if we could please get onto the solo hiking podcast episode prior to her leaving on her trip in a couple of weeks. Mm. And I wrote back and I said, I'm sorry, but to be honest, we're not ready to delve into that dark chasm at this point in time. But we have a guest on the podcast this week who does a lot of uh, solo hiking. A lot. A lot. And when you... When you hear about this guy's adventures and the way he approaches, you know, being in the wilderness and the close calls he's had and preparation and everything, I mean, you know, it's, it's just a perfect segue into introducing him, actually. Andy is a Hungarian-born, um, well, he's Australian now, I guess. He's got a, a love for the outdoors, but he's got a, a specific love for Tasmania now, a, a little island off the coast of Australia. And when you're talking to him, he just, like, he's just exploding with enthusiasm and, and just knowledge. Yep. It's incredible. It was such a fun chat. It was just great being able to talk on that level with someone. Uh, you can tell he thinks about every aspect of of being in the wilderness and appreciates every second he's out there, whether it's sunny or raining. Mm. This is a guy that his first solo hike was three days. His second solo hike was 74 days. Mm. His third solo hike was 84 days. 
So so he really kind of transitioned up, didn't he, from yep, yep. 3 to 74. <clears throat> He's hiked across uh, Victoria. It's a state in the lower part of Australia, and he's hiked, what did they call that section he hiked in, uh, it had a specific name. I'd say he hiked the Australian Alps walking track. That was 74 days. And then he did what they call the Skyline Traverse, which was 84 days. It's from the southernmost to the northernmost peaks of Tasmania, uh, following the highest ridges um, pretty much the whole time. Mm. And in between those two adventures, he found time to also put together a, a ragtag bunch of of guys and girls to hike to Federation Peak, which is a really brutal, brutal peak in the middle of Tasmania. When I say in the middle, I don't mean... If you look at a map, I just mean in the middle of nowhere in yeah, Tasmania. Yeah. Uh, and took a couple of really good climbers with him to attempt to climb up this thing called the the Blade or Blade Ridge. Again, an absolutely spectacular piece of uh, terra firma. It is just incredible. And Andy uh, tells it a lot better than I do. So Craig, unless you've got Anything to add, mate? No, it was like having a DNM with him, and he explains his his outlook, his like how it how it affects him and his approach to the wilderness so well. Um, yeah, I really loved hearing his his comments on all of it. It was great. Yeah, his kind of ethos behind everything he does is is quite poetic. Mm. And it comes through in all of his writing and, and his photography as well. So mm. we'll let you be the judge. We'll head on into that. It was a massive conversation. So we're actually going to split this into over two episodes because it's well worth, uh, you know, focusing and, and listening to everything he has to say. Thank you, guys. Enjoy. Hello, hello. <laughs> Hey, mate, how you doing? Oh, I'm traveling all right. How are you? Pretty good, mate. <laughs> what are you up to? Oh, mate, I just made myself a cup of tea. I had an afternoon nap today. I'm having a great time today. Well, I'm glad you got a nap in, mate, <laughs> because it's probably going to be a long night. <laughs> well, it sounds like you guys are gearing up for an overnighter or something <laughs> like that. You've got a studio or something like that. Yeah, Where are you guys at? We're, we're in the studio. It's nice and warm. We've got um, coffee and salt and vinegar chips. Yeah. Essentials oh. for overnighters. <laughs> Crunchy. Mate, first things first, Andy, um, can you teach us how to pronounce your surname? Oh, it's going to take a little while. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, no, it's easy. It's only three sounds. It's Sir Lushi. Sir Lushi. Sir Lushi. Sir Lushi. Yeah, it's close enough. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm thankful. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> they were calling you something completely different um, down at the film festival where we met. I think that works. Oh well, look, most most people, most Australians, kind of shorten Sulushi to Sloshy or Sloz, so uh, we yeah. just kind of stick. Yeah, stick with Sloz. 
Yeah, that that uh, that works for me, mate. That's nice. So just to um, let our listeners know that we actually met you. If you cast your mind back, we were in a yurt in a field in Tasmania, and uh, I think it was the beer tent actually. And you waltzed on in, and uh, that's where we said g'day, and here we are now, mate. Well, that's right. It feels like, you know, it was a little while ago. That was at the start of winter up at the Cradle Mountain Film Fest. And, um, yeah, I remember I got on stage in that yurt to tell a couple of yarns. And, um, yeah, I was still on the first slide when Antho uh, went to me, oh, mate, you've got about two minutes left. And I thought, oh, I should have got about 20 minutes, like 20 <laughs> slides left to talk about. Like, this is terrible. So, oh, fuck, who knows? Yeah, anyways. You did well. Am I allowed to... Am I allowed to swear on here, by the way, or should I like cut the F words out now or mate, later? you just relax, be yourself. We want to talk to Andy, mate, so you do what you got to do. Go for it. Sometimes oh, Craig, Andy, Craig Andy, says Andy, naughty. Craig yeah, says no, naughty Andy words. got lost. Andy got lost. This is Sloz here. Oh, Sloz. Andy, you got, you got lost in the scrubs somewhere back behind. <laughs> oh, Slozzy, it sounds like you're from South Africa, mate. <laughs> Well, that's what people say, yeah, but I'm from Hungary, yeah. Yeah, how long have you been in Australia? Oh, only about, um, I don't know, 16 years. 16 years. And, yeah, well, you sound like a full-blown Australian now. Yeah. Oh, well, you, know, you, pick, you, pick, you pick up a bit of lingo here and there, you know, you live in the country. Uh, but we moved to, yeah, Melbourne with my folks. Yep. Yeah, about 16 years ago when I was 14. Yep. And then, um, yeah, I found my way to Tasmania about five years ago. All right. And that was, um, yeah, that was, you know, quite a big step for me, I suppose, finding Tassie. And, yeah, I found my tribe down here too. Yeah, you, you seem to love Tassie, hey, mate, don't you? Well, I love them hills, yeah, out in the bush. Yeah. Yeah. What What was the um, move from um, overseas for it? Was there a specific event that triggered the move to Australia? Um, it was more of a slow build-up, you know, with my mum and my stepdad, the three of us moved here, and my stepdad had his um, daughter living in Melbourne at the time, so, yeah, he wanted to be a bit closer to her, so we moved, and I loved it, you know. My parents asked me when I was 13, they said, do you want to move to Australia? I was like, hell yeah, let's go. Because, <laughs> um, you know, it's on the other side of the world, and... Um, yeah, I mean, I remember we came to Tassie on a holiday. That was my first introduction. Oh, right. To the o- yeah, uh, Wineglass Bay. We went down to the beach, and that was the first time I ever saw the ocean, you know? Is that right? So then I thought, well, two years later, my parents said, you want to move to Australia? I was like, oh, yeah, sure, don't worry. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fantastic. And is there a, um, um, is there a big kind of a outdoor sort of, pastime over in Hungary as well? Uh, well, you know, I mean, uh, growing up as a kid, you know, we were used to ride on mountain bikes everywhere. Okay. Um, but I reckon, you know, kids do that here as well. But back there, like, the country's pretty flat um, and, you know, it's all agricultural land. Like, there's no wilderness left um, pretty much anywhere in Europe now. Oh, right. Um, so then, yeah, like what, what you find in Tassie in the, in the hills here is places that you feel like no one's been before. I mean, obviously people have been through all there for thousands of years now, but when you're out there, you feel very alone, you know, and that's a very different kind of experience to anything you can experience on the European continent now. 
Right. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think there's only, well, there's definitely only two places, uh, and I have said this on a previous podcast, there's only two places I've felt insignificant. And that was uh, one of those places was on the Overland track and the other place was Yosemite National Park in the States. Yeah. Both of those places I realized the the magnitude of, of everything around us, which is pretty cool. Well, yeah, so I don't know what it is about those places, but um, I was attracted here, you know, and I got a job on the Overland track as a guide about, yeah, five years ago, and that's what brought me down to Tassie. Yeah, right. Yeah, because we, um, um, we had some uh, mutual acquaintances, mutual friends in um, Arana and Melody. Was that the same company you were working for? Uh, yeah, so I worked here yeah, for um, the da- Cradle Huts, they used to call them back in the day. Now yeah. Daz Walking Company. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so basically on the Overland track, you know, walked it about 50 or 60 times over four years. Wow. Yeah, cool. Um, so I spent a bit of time up there, you know, and that was work. And as soon as I'd knock off work, yeah, the last four or five years, you know, I'd pack my bags and hit the hills again, you know, but in my own time. Yeah. Uh, so I reckon I've spent more of my time in the last five years, yeah, up in the mountains of Tassie than, you know, here in town. Well, that's not a bad place to be. Mm. Can you um, tell me, when you've done the Overland track that many times, does it ever get, does it ever get old or, I, it's just, I cannot comprehend doing something that many times. What's it like? Well, I think you're under a really interesting question there because the place itself doesn't change, you know. it's be- I mean, it's beautiful every time. And every time you see something um, that you haven't seen before, so no two trips are ever the same. But there is such a thing as walking the Overland track too many times. <laughs> <laughs> what what number do you um, think that was? Somewhere around 30, oh, 30 or 40? <laughs> I think I think that number is different to every person. I'm like sure some people is. walk, man. Some people walk the Overland Track once, and they're like, "I'm never walking it again." <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, "Look, yeah, no, I love it. Like, I really love it. And I'd go back and and do it, you know, and and lead another trip." But it's gotten to a point where I probably wouldn't just go and walk the Overland Track for my own, you know, unless I was going with someone or, um, yeah. Yeah, because like, you have that association that it is, you know, it is work and, you know, taking people through. Yeah. But holy man, you know, when you stop when you stop doing it, that, that's when you realize, like, how amazing it is, though, because you really miss it, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, it, it's, so then, um, it's a spectacular place. Uh, I've done it. I did it, um, well, what, the day after we met you, Craig and I did it. And that was my third time and Craig's first time. So we did it on the back of the um, Cradle Mountain Film Festival. Mm. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. That's right. You guys were heading out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we planned And that. how was that trip anyways? Uh, spectacular. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, so nice, man. Really good. We got, uh, you know, a little bit of um, on the Sunday. So we started on the Sunday, went up through the huts and got a ton of wind and kind of rain and stuff which was pretty cool and then we got some beautiful weather we got absolutely smashed with sleet and the oh that sounds fun yeah that was good that was on the um on the ossa day mount ossa summit and which i enjoyed because uh what i was saying to the guys um on the trip was 
I feel like my first two OSA summits were just gifted to me. They were both in perfect sunshine, um, no rain, no clouds, nothing. And then, right. um, and then this third one, we really had to work for it. It was pretty cold down there. Yeah. <laughs> what was the view like from the top this last time? Then oh, it was nothing. You could you could see you could see about twenty meters in front of you. Yeah. But just uh, didn't make any difference. And the guys uh, like. I took, uh, ended up guiding two people that we met on the trail plus Craig and uh, I don't think the three of them were disappointed at all with not getting a view because you still have that, uh, you still have that understanding that you're, you're at a summit somehow. Mm, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was good, good times, man. But I, I understand what you say. Like there's, there's, um, if I didn't have to do that for work, I'd seriously I'm not sure how many times I would do the overland track again now because there's so many other things I want to tick off, which makes it hard. Yeah, well, that's right, you know, and, and I wonder what it is that makes it feel like you're standing on a summit. Like, uh, was it the wind by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I couldn't feel my fingers. It was something to do with that, I think. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, the thing about Tassie, you know, is when you go to these places, like, they're not very tall in the big scheme of things. Like, you know, they're dwarfed by the Himalayas or even Absolutely. the Andes. Yep. Um, or even the Alps, you know. But then in terms of how how um, powerful um, the weather systems are that kind of move in, you know, to compare, like, to, to even mainland Australia, where you've got the Great Dividing Range, you know, you've got eucalypt trees, yeah, so you've got, the snow gums there, they grow up to about 1,600, 1,700 metres. Yep. And in Tassie, yeah, the, the tree line sits at around 1,100. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the snow gums can't get above 1,200 here because it's just, yeah, so much harsher um, when, that, when that weather comes in yeah. um, in the winter. And, you know, I reckon the permanent snow line used to sit at around that elevation in Tassie, you know, not that long ago. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting place, um, and as you say, it, it doesn't take long to, even in the first two or three hours of the overland track, you start to see very clearly that the landscape is just, you know, it's just been stripped by this constant winds and these harsh conditions. A any bush that you see is, unless it's kind of tucked away behind a ridge or something, it's just small and really mm. gnarly. Well, the way they grow, like you can actually see the direction of the wind, the prevailing wind on a ridge line when you walk through. So when you're on a ridge line and you look at the plants on a really exposed ridge line above, you know, 12, 1300 meters, they're growing sideways mm. and they're actually dying off on one side and they're, you know, growing the other way, the opposite way Yeah. with, with the wind. And they might only be, you know, a foot tall, but they might be two or three meters long. Yeah. Um, and so that's their adaptation, you know. It's the wind knocks them down, so they stay close to the ground. Hmm. Yeah, mate. Where did your, uh, where did all of this interest and love for the wilderness come from? Is this something you've, uh, your parents have nurtured, or is it something that you discovered on your own? Wilderness is something that's part of all of us. Yeah. And when you go out there, you recognise that, you know. And so you, what you see out there is, is, is part of the world, you know, and it's so different to anything else you can experience um, in so many places. Um, in wilderness, you know, it's that feeling of solitude out there. Um, 
or even camaraderie, you know, with other people, yep. you, you can acknowledge that the landscapes have a, a really deep effect, um, you know, on your, on your psyche, on your, on your being when you're out there. Yeah. Um, anyone, anyone who's spent, anyone who's spent time out there, not just from a helicopter, you know, but down on the ground or paddling in or, you know, swimming out or climbing up when you're out there, it kind of strikes you, you go, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> this is beautiful, you know? Yeah, that's definitely true. And we've uh, made many friends on the trail over the years um, all across Australia. And, and I think that uh, it does forge friendships, that's for sure, uh, especially if you have to go through a bit of a tough day or something together. Um, you definitely, well, you either um, never speak to each other again or you speak to each other a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I always say, you know, you really get to know people in the mountains when you spend time out there with them and you rope together or, you know, you're doing a walk together and, and you know, um, yeah, you get to know that person pretty well or, you know, however many people you're with. Yeah, it's a really interesting concept, isn't it? Because I think that it doesn't really matter who that person is, what their status is in society how old they are, how young they are. It, Mother Nature just strips everything back. And apart from, you know, maybe there's an obvious difference in the gear that you carry or the clothes you wear. But apart from that, there's not much left. It, you get treated the same way. Uh, and it doesn't matter what demographic you're from. Mother Nature just said, deals an even hand over everybody. Well, yeah, it's not always a fair hand, though, like when you're up in the mountains. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I, I, yeah, a lot of the times it's not fair. <laughs> hey, Andy, we're, we're definitely going to dig into some of your adventures, mate, because we're, we're really excited to talk to you about them. Um, but did you start adventuring when you were just a kid or did you do any adventures? When was some of your first or what was one of your first early adventures that you did? Oh, mate, the first adventure I had was when uh, I was five years old and I said to my brother, who's about um, – yeah, he's seven years older than me. Um, I might have been six, actually, anyways. And I said to him, hey, mate, see that cliff over there that's covered in snow? Yeah, we should go climb that. Um, <laughs> it was the middle of winter in Hungary, and my brother doesn't really like talking about this, but anyways. Still so doesn't we went like up. it. No, he doesn't really like talking about this, but anyways. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, we went up, and we got about five metres up this, you know, nearly vertical cliff. About halfway up, my brother slipped, you know, and he was holding me up, basically, so we both fell. Uh. Um, I got a pretty good knock on the head, which a lot of my friends say explains a lot. Yeah, it's, um, it's all starting to yeah. make sense now. Yeah, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, so it all kind of fell into place, or you got knocked out of place when I was about six, but yeah, I got a scar on the top of my head from that, so I'd say that probably marked my first adventure, which said to my mum, oh, you know, this kid's going to give you a lot of grief. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, look out. What's yeah. your mum's reaction now to these uh, things that you're putting yourself through and therefore her through? Well, look, I mean, she just wants to know I'm okay on a daily basis if I'm on a trip. So okay. I used to, you know, I usually send her, you know, messages um, from a spot messenger. Yep. And just say, hey, mum, I haven't died yet. Um, <laughs> yep. And then she goes, oh, okay, he's still alive, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much our agreement. So, you know, if I go on a trip, then I let her know how long I'm going to be gone for and when I can check in. Because yep. sometimes, you know, she knows that I can't check in and that's fine as long as she knows that 
yeah. I'm not able to check in because otherwise you might be like, oh, why hasn't he called? Um, but yeah, it's one of those things, you know, when you go on these trips, it's um, you enter you enter a new realm and you don't really know or understand the rules of the things that you're going to find there. So sometimes, yeah, you know, you take, yeah, you take risks out there for sure. So you never know. Mm. Uh, calculated though, I hope. Well, maybe not in your case. <laughs> well, it's one of those things like how many mountaineers die every year, you know, because they know what the risks are. Absolutely. And most of the time how to recognize them. But sometimes, you know, there's an avalanche or sometimes there's a rock fall and sometimes, you know, um, there's a swollen river or something like that. Yeah. You've got to get across. It's so, and it's so, so simple. You never mate. know. It's so simple yeah. to end up. And I think uh, for me, well, at least in our experiences, it's usually a series of smaller bad decisions that put us into um, a predicament, you know, uh, that we have to dig ourselves out of. I think that's such, yeah, I think that's so true, especially when it comes to bushwalking um, in Tassie. Um, usually, yeah, there's not one thing that goes wrong. It's a series of kind of unfortunate events, you know, or, yeah, mismanaged events, yeah. Yeah, and they t they tend to compound as well. Um, yeah, anyway, we won't go yeah. into that. <laughs> well, yeah, because I reckon, like, people don't just break a leg, you know, like they haven't eaten and then the weather came in, so they're really cold. And they went off trail. And they were tired. They were lost. They lost, you know. Yep. And they slipped on a rock or something like and, that. And yeah. they didn't make a backup plan. They don't, didn't have an EPIRB. And, yeah, as you say, yeah, all of a sudden um, the last thing you do is slip and twist your ankle and you can't walk and that, that just compounds everything. Mm. Well, if you have no way of you know, getting found or sending a message out, like in these places, you know, I've been, I've been to places in the, you know, in the southwest where I've been six days from the closest track Um you know, that's hard walking. That's not easy walking. Yeah. That's, you know, six full days with a full pack off track to get to the closest walking track. Yeah, that's um, incredible. And so, you know, to experience that sense of um, isolation from your fellow human beings, um, yeah, is, is something quite profound. You know, it makes you so much more appreciative when you return, you know, for all the things that you do have provided to you by society and our current dominant culture. Do you tend to find a... Okay, how can I word this question? When you're out solo hiking, do you feel uh, more comfortable? Like, do you find yourself, or do you realize that, yeah, I'm going to be glad to get home and socialize with people again? There's a bit of you know both of those things. Um, yeah, because um, when you're out there, it's a different state of being. Um, when you're out there, it's, um, it becomes really simple, uh, in the sense that, you know, you wake up, you've got to have breakfast, you've got to pack up camp and then you've got to move, find another camp, um, and have dinner and go to bed. And this is it. Like when you're on a solo hike, you know, usually you've got an objective of, you know, the reason that you're doing the trip, uh, is when you want to get to a particular place or you want to follow a particular line on the map to get from point A to point B. Um, and so, you know, in that sense, you've got an objective because you've only got so much food. There's no way to top up your food once you're out there. So then, yeah, it kind of becomes almost, yeah, like you've got to move every day. But then to be able to take it all in, you know, as you're going along, like that's the, that's the key beat that often a lot of people miss is 
Um, so many people are peak baggers these days, you know, they're ticking things off a list. Yeah. And it's point A to point B. And you don't really take any of anything else in except the fact that, oh, yeah, I got to the top. Yeah, it was great. What's the next one? Yeah. Um, it's more about, for me, it's about getting to know the landscape. So, you know, I pick a particular route because I want to see the country that's out there. So when I'm doing my solo trips, you know, I always leave time to like have a cup of tea. If, you know, I feel like, oh, this is a good rock to sit down on and ponder for half an hour, you know? <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. Andy, when you're, when you're out there on your own, do you sometimes find it difficult to sort of make decisions because you've got no one to bounce these things off? Do you encounter any times where mm. you've got to kind of look hard into yourself to make decisions? Well, that's right. Because when, you, when you're on your own, like, there's no one to bounce off. So any decision that you make, um, I guess there's no one who's going to turn to you and say, hey, have you really thought about that? Um, so you, if you make a bad decision, like, you usually get to bear it uh, full, you know, full on, like, on yourself. Yeah, and there's nobody else to blame. No, I was going to say that. Bit, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Because then you've got to own up to it, and that's a lot harder than blaming someone else. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I know that I've definitely struggled with that in the past. And I remember my very first solo trip, the very first afternoon of the very first day, I realized straight away that making decisions, even simple decisions of where to put the tent became these massive things that I was overthinking. And just because I couldn't turn to someone like Craig and say, hey, mate, do you reckon we should put the tent there or there? And he'd go... Uh, yeah, probably over here. Okay, good. We're done. <laughs> that decision took me five to ten minutes. You know, it was ridiculous. Mm. Yeah, well, I just I was just glad to ask you, mate, because I I see you have spent so much time on your own in the in the wild, and yeah, I really respect that. And I'm sure there's skills that you've learned along the way, and it's you, you po we possibly take that for granted looking at it through your eyes. Um, but yeah, I'm sure you've built a, a very high level of, of, of abilities just to be alone and to just be happy and content with that. And it, it probably doesn't doesn't stress you much at all. Yeah, look, the solitude is something that I look forward to on a trip. Um, and it kind of defines the trip as in, you know, I if you go with other people, um, it's a totally different trip. You could do the same, you know, route of the walk or, you know, go to the same place and just totally have a different experience because when you're with a group, you know, you're focused on your fellow people, which is normal, I suppose. Yeah, if there's other people around, you focus yeah. on them. Hey, uh, can we, in, sorry, can, yeah. we, can we put our listeners in, in the picture? What's the longest um, sort of solo uh, sort of trip you've done on your own? 84 days. Yeah, I think that's it, important wow. to mention that because we talk about solo hiking a lot on this podcast and we get a lot of questions about it. In fact, I had a message only two or three days ago from a girl saying, can you do a, something about solo um, hiking before um, she goes on her trip <laughs> in a month? And I said, well, we're not going to do a dedicated podcast at this point in time, but we've got a guest on who's a bit of an expert. Yeah. <laughs> and for us, you know, my longest solo hike was seven seven or eight days or something. Well, that's um, a decent length, yeah. Yeah, it's decent, but I think that it's easy to see the finish line. Once you get past two, three, four days, all of a sudden, you know, you're getting invigorated and, and starting to, to enjoy um, the end almost. 
and the thing is, I can't, I really can't put into perspective what it's like to do 84 days and how you break that down into smaller chunks. Hmm. Well, that's right. I mean, this is, you know, the popularity of long distance hiking is that I think it takes three weeks to settle into a trip. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I think a trip of three months is the perfect length, at least for me, because it gives you that sense of a journey, you know, and it allows you to process things that you don't have time to process in your, you know, busy everyday, day-to-day life because you're constantly being faced by those micro decisions. But when you go on a longer trip, you leave all of that stuff behind because um, it's totally not relevant. It's not required where you are. And so you can just focus on very simple things like just taking in what's around you um, and, you know, noticing the little details um, of the landscape that you're traveling through. Um, but, you know, I mean, my first solo hike was three days long and um, this was back in Victoria. And yeah. I remember re- being really scared by a possum that came to the campsite. Because <laughs> um, I was like, oh, what's that thing? It's moving in the bushes and it's dark. Like, what is it? <laughs> Um, so that was my first overnight experience where I went to this campsite. I thought there'd be other people around, but it was just me. And it was terrifying, the dark, the trees, the sound of the wind moving through the trees. And I always say now that, you know, the greatest fear is the fear of the unknown. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you don't know what it is, so your mind fills it in. But when you actually go out there on your own, so many people are deterred, you know, oh, aren't you scared to go to the woods on your own? I think especially um, females, you know, feel this more than the guys do. Yeah. And, and, and when you get out there, you realize actually this is fine. Like this is beautiful and this is exactly where I need to be. Um, when you're in the bush, you know, I've never felt threatened out there um, in Australia at least and Tasmania, you know, uh, in the highlands, the people I've met. Um, I've never, never anything really found anything that I was like, this is trying to kill me or trying to threaten me in any way. Um, as long as you don't bloody pull on the tail of a snake, you should be all right. <laughs> but, but even then, even uh, I'm not recommending you pull on the tail of a snake. But what my point is, even if you have an encounter with a snake, and I know you did on on one of your um, walks with a friend. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we've had, we've certainly been uh, run into a few of them, big and small. Um but even then, it's a, how would you say it? It's a, not, not calculated, but it's, you understand that that danger is there. Like when, when you see the snake, you know it's a snake and you understand the the. Well, if you're paying attention, yeah. well, you know, if, if you're trying to take a selfie and you're, you know, stepping backwards and you step <laughs> on a snake that way, well, then you deserve it anyway. Is that, um, is that what happened? I didn't hear this story. No, so. no, he wasn't. No, he wasn't doing that. No, he, that's not what I was doing. <laughs> no, no, he, no, no. You were just wa- that was, wandering down a trail. <laughs> well, that, well, that was a classic one, actually. I'll tell that one because that's a good one because that was my first big trip. That was four, uh, four years ago now. Was that Victorian. Um, Australian Alps walking track? That's the one, yeah, that yeah. takes you from um, the old gold mining town of Valhalla all the way to Canberra through, um, yeah, Australia's snow country um, up the Great Dividing Range. Yeah. Uh, it's about 650 k. so... Wow. The, and you did that the, in 74 days, is that right? I was probably the slowest person ever to walk the AAWT. <laughs> that's my claim to fame, yeah. I think, that's, um, I think that's... You should get a badge for that, man. I think you probably... As you say, you probably extracted more out of the experience than just trying to get from A to B each day? Well, with the Australian Alps, you know, before that, my longest trip was three days long on my own. Wow. Um, 
and that was 74 days. So I thought, well, you know, that sounds about right. Let's go. Hang on. I want to hear this snake story. Come on. Yeah, come sorry, on. sorry. Go back to the snake so anyway, story. Anyway, day one, day one of the Australian Alps Traverse. Yeah, I've got this 40-kilo pack on. Yeah, because, you know, I thought that's all the stuff I needed to take. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I'm not moving particularly fast. But anyway, so I'm chatting to my mate who's, you know, coming along with me for the first day and then he'll hike out the next day. And as we're t- chatting along, we're following the Thompson River Valley from Valhalla and it's quite a steep kind of slope and there's a road cut into it, you know, contouring along the river. And um, we're walking on this, so there's a big drop-off on one side and quite a vertical kind of escarpment on, on the other side. So we're just on this, you know track and i look up and there's a big snake coming at me about i don't know it was pretty close to me i don't know how close it was but you know i said a couple of days before that to my mum. i was like oh don't worry mum. there's no snakes out there it'll be the first day of spring you know it's still cold up in the mountains so then you know and then i was like holy shit that's a big snake so then i turned around and i went go 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 and by the time i turned around with my pack my mate jolie he was Scooting down the track, yeah, he was already away, and then that was the only time, the only time that a snake came after me. So I started running from it with a pack on, and it came <laughs> after me, and I was like, "Holy shit!" I had to rise up one of my hiking poles. I was going to whack down on it, but then, nah, he went away, slid away, made an escape. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know what I did is I pinned the snake up against that wall, so it couldn't escape through any yeah. other means except through me. So that's why it came towards me. You know, it wasn't really trying to get me or anything, but no, it no. freaked me out. Yeah. And that was day one, so I thought, wow, what does that mean? <laughs> Craig and I um came across a oh, would would have been what somewhere somewhere around a three meter um python uh, on this trail, and again it was steep on the left and it was, uh, you know, how would you say, a carved out path on the right. So mm. you couldn't go under it and you couldn't go over it. And yep. I said to Craig, you just, just walk right over the edge and just, just walk calmly and just walk straight past it. It'll be fine. As he got past it, it just took a massive swipe at him. <laughs> just, oh. I, I got so close and it lifted its oh, head up it and I went, up. oh, this ain't going to go too yeah, well. Yeah, but when he went past and he didn't see it, but after he went past, this thing struck at him and missed. Yeah. And then Whoa. it was agitated and it was between us and I couldn't I couldn't get to him without um, going past this thing. But again, like, as you say, the only reason it was agitated was because it was trying to go up and the bank was too steep and then we're there bothering it and essentially trapping it. So I use my um, hiking poles like chopsticks, mate, and I, and I, I with a giant noodle and I just, um, I just turned him around and slid him down the hill. It worked a treat. Oh, well, well done. That sounds pretty epic. It was heavy, though. It was bending the... I remember Craig tried to move it with a stick and the stick snapped. Snapped, yeah. <laughs> a python? Yeah, I've never seen a python, you know, out in the bush. That's fucking cool. Oh, wow, man. I gotta, I'm going to send you a link to this this python I came across um, up in Queensland. I was on a solo hike and I was standing on this ledge, which would be, say, you know, say the size of a, a small bedroom. And I've climbed down onto this ledge, walked out to the edge of the ledge to take some photographs of the valley below. It was quite a drop off from the edge of that ledge. And I've taken two steps back and I've got my camera down sort of around my waist and I was reviewing the photos uh, that I'd just taken, looking at the back of the camera. 
And then for some reason, my eyes focused on the ground about a meter in front of me. And there was this coil, this monstrous coil of snake and this big head as big as your fist, just looking straight at me. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I took the biggest breath in and my heart stopped for a second and I slowly reversed back and got up onto the, um, onto the previous ledge. And then, yeah, I got some really good footage of it. Unfortunately, it was on an older camera of mine, which isn't that great. But yeah, it's on YouTube, man. I'll, I'll show you a link to that. It's an absolute beast. I'm, yep. I'm talking, I'm talking <laughs> wow. um, as thick as your thigh. And Whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 20, 20 foot long, somewhere around that. I've never Whoa. seen one that big, even in captivity. This thing was the healthiest python I've ever seen. Hmm. It was probably eyeing you off, like, ooh, oh, mate, it, it, it would have given me a red-hot go, too. Like, I don't reckon I would have out-wrestled that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Holy moly, yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, beautiful, though. Absolutely majestic, this thing was. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know what sort of snake had a go at you? Oh, it was, um, no, I don't, actually, because I was in the Victorian Alps, so there's a few more there than in Tassie. Um, it was beautiful. It was kind of, it had a little green or kind of it was mostly brown though it was a brown snake but it had a little green tinge to it It was quite big it was about three meters long oh that's a decent Jeez. that's decent mate it was a bit it was a big snake yeah and it was coming <laughs> at me yeah so anyways um but yeah so that was my first big solo trip you know and so then after that one i just thought well that was the best thing i've ever done cool. um in terms of what i got out of it and what i experienced and what i was going to take away from it um and I thought, well, I'm going to continue this process, you know, um, of planning a trip, doing the trip, and then kind of absorbing the lessons that you learn, which for the Australian Alps, that was a two-year process. And then my next project, uh, which is, you know, the Tassie Traverse of last year, um, but that was a four-year project. Wow. Um, so they've been the two kind of big projects that I've had, you know, in terms of my bushwalking career. <laughs> <laughs> Something that I picked up in your uh, blog, I was reading through all of the the sections of that um, that first hike, and now I'm not sure if it was you. I'm pretty sure that a little birdie at the at the um, film festival was telling us some stories about you. And, oh yeah, uh, a yeah, little birdie. yeah, little birdie, yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> and and I'll I'm just touch on this comment that you made in your blog was. Basically, you said, just as Jimmy got ready for bed, I strapped on my boots. So I was reading and I had to go back and I had to go back and reread this because I thought, no, no, hang on. He's just said that they've got to this hut and there's a storm outside and they're sitting in the hut (laughs) and it's getting late and it's pitch black outside. And then I read it again and again and I thought, no, hang on, this this crazy bugger is so then because you said after that I couldn't resist going out in the storm. Um, <laughs> oh, it wasn't a real storm. It was a bit windy. It was one of those like spring kind of snow showers that came in. And yeah, like we, the hut was still in the cloud. Like it was bloody cold. And I was just like, we were at uh, McAllister Springs. Yeah. Do you guys, have you guys been there at all? No, unfortunately. No. Oh, okay. So that's in the Victorian Alps. Um, Jimmy came along with me for a week, yeah, um, as we traversed the Crosscut Saw. And that's spectacular. That's some of the grousest country in Victoria. Um, yeah. And um, 
yeah, you're deep into the heart of the Victorian Alps, so it's really remote country there. And we were trekking up this big hill, and yeah, we just watched as this storm came in. And, um, you know, we literally found, we found a bottle of beer on the way to the hut, like 200 meters from the hut. We found a bottle of beer. Oh yeah. I read about that. That was awesome. And, um, and it was still good. You know, someone just dropped it on the way out and we got to this hut and we got a fire going and the storm came in and we had this fire roaring in there in this old stone hut. Um, it's high up on the ridge, you know, and a storm, you know, shook the hut. Um, but then, you know, over dinner, it kind of blew over. We were inside the hut having dinner. Uh, we had, you know, um, we had a little smoke and whatever. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go out and check out what it's like on the summit. And Jimmy thought I was joking because, you know, like he was he was knackered and he was going to bed. And I was like, mate, that's all right. I'll be back in a couple of hours. Um, yeah, you sleep tight. I'll take the EFA with me, so don't worry. Um, and then I went out. And it was pitch black. And I will never forget the sensation when I stood on the top of Mount Howitt that night in the pitch black, it was so fucking cold. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I remember, like, just standing there. I can believe and, it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I was standing there facing the wind, and the wind was just, you know, freezing on my nose. And I thought, all right, I've seen enough. I'm going to go back to the hut now. <laughs> you see, the reason I brought that up is – the, am I allowed to talk about your uh, some of the adventures, some of your side trails you do when you're uh, guiding people, or is that a, is that taboo? Oh, look, I mean, <laughs> that story has been getting around for a little while now, and look, I think I just prefer the name of the person I was with is not mentioned. Um, yeah, I because didn't. he's still a guide, and I'm not a guide anymore. But I might still be a guide one day. Well, that's why but I, I think, politely asked. But but politely, yeah, I think that experience has made us much better guides than we were before. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if it's the incident on Mount Peely in West that you're referring to, I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, yeah. The little um, birdie did mention something about that. Oh no, I don't, I don't think I can go any further oh. without without Andy's permission. I might That's have right. to tell Craig the story after the podcast. Oh, I think it's one of those ones that I'll give a brief summary in a nutshell. That yeah, <laughs> okay. we took a little we took a little side trip with uh, a friend of mine. Yeah, and. It's a basic story of wilderness exploration, you know. It took us a bit longer than we thought, um, except, yeah, we got back to the hut at, uh, about 10 minutes before we had to start cooking breakfast. Um, oh. So, yeah, but we had a great time and... Just in, case you, didn't, by... just in case you didn't piece that together, Craig, Andy was guiding. Oh, but then went out group. at night and then had an adventure. Then once they all went to bed, he's yeah. gone out for a quick little romp, uh-huh. which has turned into getting back at, what, 5 a.m. or something in the morning. Glutton for punishment, man. That Co- sounds cooking cool. breakfast, then getting dressed, and then guiding for the rest of the day. No rest. No rest. That sounds awesome. No, no rest for the weekend. No. Well, look. The thing is, yeah, when you're out in the bush, things happen and it doesn't always go to plan, you know, like, and I think to me personally, like, it's those trips that don't go to plan that the ones that you're going to remember yeah. um, and take away the most from, because they're the times that you've done something, um, usually, yeah, um, absolutely. that you screwed up, you made a bad call and you got to live with it and going through that process of going, fuck, it's the middle of the night, we're lost. 
We've got no idea where we are. We're not anywhere close to the track. We're on the wrong side of the mountain. It's one o'clock. It's pitch black. There's scrub all around. We got five hours to get back to the hut. <laughs> yeah, people that that depend on us. Uh, yeah, there's people expecting um, breakfast. And we kind of like being wilderness guides because we're good at our job and we love it. And we're gonna get back to the hut on yeah, time. Yeah, and the yeah. guests must not find out. Um, yeah. <laughs> Look, it's not something that I recommend to aspiring young guides to undertake. But yeah, like I think missioning as a guide is like kind of part of part of being a good guide. I think in the wilderness is that you do want to get out there and like obviously you want to do it in a way that doesn't affect your group. Yeah. Um, yep. But then that thing of fuck, you know, we just so want to have a look up there, see what it's like on top of that mountain. Um, even if it's pitch black, you know, just to be out there and experience that, like we crave that as guides, you know, that's why we do the job. Yeah. Um, and having those skills, you know, could actually come in really handy one day um, when you do have a group out there and it is, you know, the conditions have come in and you've lost the track or whatever. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like there's, it gives you certain skills, but at the end of the day, when you're there, you think, Oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> Is it, um, perhaps not on that, uh, you don't have to delve any deeper into that, but I appreciate that because that's an absolutely cracking story. The You obviously um, have come across a lot of adversity on your adventures and in particular when you're with other people, uh, do you ever, I mean, from what I've, what I know, what little I know of you just from when we met you and, and the research I've done and everything, um, yeah, I know you're, you're a uh, mad dog, but also you seem to be pretty relaxed and calm. Is, is that something that you're able to sustain when the shit does hit the fan? Well, I think you need to, um, just at least not completely lose it. You know, um, stay calm is what they say. Um, cause you know, there's a bit of a, if, if there's a, a situation that you got to deal with, you know, often your your brain just stops working, like you're not really thinking straight. Um, and it's just good to have like a process to fall back on that you can, you know, go through. So it's like, you know, step one, like just assess, you know, stop, just stop, you know, have a look at what's going on and then deal with the most important things first. Um, yeah. And then, the you know, the less important things come later. It's kind of like curating some kind of a triage or hierarchy of, you know, things that you've got to do in a certain order. Yep. Um, which is, you know, it's the basic, like, wilderness first aid that you get taught, like, you know, an mm. accident management plan. Yep. Um, but then, yeah, not every – like, some people are better at, at just remaining calm in a certain situation. And so I wonder what that is about certain people, you know, who just naturally have that um, – yeah. yeah, it's it's yeah, really it's, interesting to consider. There's definitely um, different types of people. I know that poor Craig has had to deal with me in bad situations and I don't flip out, but I a switch goes off where I just see everything as black and white and I almost go cold to emotion. I'm basically just assessing this is a good decision, this is a bad decision, This is, these are the pros and cons and I'm trying to get to the solution but it's almost like my emotion disappears and my empathy kind of disappears a bit too it's like i'm not as sensitive to people's um feelings as i am when mm. when this so i get the job done but 
I um I tend to go in almost like this military kind of weird zone where mm. it, it it help I'm calm like it helps me stay calm but it's yeah there's um yeah it's something I will continue to work on. Well, that's the thing. Like you know, there's different there's different states of mind too. Like what you're describing to me kind of sounds like either there's been like an injury or an accident, or it's the end of the day. You're really tired. It's getting cold. Um, you just want to find that goddamn campsite, and that's exactly. I find there's two circumstances we make bad decisions, where you you know you do something that eventually you know affects you badly. It's like either yeah, you're grumpy, you're hungry, you just want to get it done, and you're not thinking straight, you know, because you just want to get it done. So you just you know make a call that you usually wouldn't be good enough, but it's like you know the idea of what constitutes a campsite when you're off track and you're walking <laughs> yes. it, changes. it changes it changes as the day goes on right? like when it's four o'clock and you've got two hours of daylight you're like oh nah this is shit nah we'll keep going yeah um look at that puddle and then two hours later you're like fuck thank god there's a puddle here we'll camp here <laughs> this will do yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs> do you think that uh the more that you expose yourselves to these situations do you think that it's a conditioning Thing? Do you think that uh, everyone is is capable of improving the, the way that they deal with these situations? Absolutely. I mean, it's just like anything else. It's practice. If you want to spend time out there and you spend time out there, your skills will improve and you'll make better calls. And more importantly, you'll you'll realize what are the calls that you got to get right. Um, and you know, that's to me when you're out there, it's really simple. You know, you need a safe place for the night where you can rest, where you can uh, cook your food and you know in terms of safety i suppose like you know if you're doing a solo hiking to a remote area it's about just making sure that you do have a campsite for tonight because yeah staying out during the night when the weather comes in it's not fun so that's the main that's your main so you know that's your main priority it's like literally am i going to be able to get to somewhere where i can pitch my tent find water and have a good night's rest before I tackled, you know, whatever it is that you got to tackle the next day. Um, and, you know, those little micro decisions, like the, uh, what you mentioned before, because they yep. accumulate. They do. So the day that starts off quite well, you know, compounding a number of factors by mid-afternoon, you could be having quite not a good time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think another thing to factor into it as well is, uh, and it, this has definitely been uh, impacted on, my decisions or my demeanor. And that is sometimes it's hard enough keeping yourself on track, uh, then having to sort of manage somebody else's, uh, expectations or feelings or, um, or the, the, the difficult process that they're struggling with as well. Like sometimes you're flat out keeping yourself on track. And, um, so yeah, I think well, all, all of that kind of explodes sometimes. Well, you know, if, you, if you're in a group and you're out there, you just got to check in on each other. You got to have um, some kind of a, you know, like a code almost. Um, hey man, what's up? You go good. Uh, uh, okay, me too. Okay, whatever. Like just have, have you know, just checking with them because that's it. Like when you stop communicating with your, you know, your partners out there, that's that's when shit happens. You know, because then you're thinking about something, they're thinking about something, but you're not communicating. So then you know, you just you can't agree on anything. Um, so yeah, just keeping that open and just being like, Hey, where are we going to camp tonight? Um, do you think that Creek looks good for water to drink out of? Um, Oh, look, there's a dead possum over there. Maybe we'll keep going. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's just keeping keeping that conversation going, and that's the thing that is difficult when you're on your own because you can talk to yourself, but no one's going to talk back to you. Yeah. Hey, mate, I'm sure you get better at these things and you've been chipping away at these skills um, for a while. We are just saying that. I, I want to talk to you about heights. I want to talk to you about <laughs> some of your adventure. We're up high, and we've had a couple of chats lately talking about our limitations with heights at the moment. And can you chip away at it? We've come to realize perhaps you can get, uh, you know, and did you start off with just a, a natural ability to get up there and not be fearful? I've seen some of your stuff, mate. It's, it's amazing. Well, look, um, I, I definitely have a fear of heights like any rational human being should. Um, uh, if you if you like being alive, then you respect heights, you right. know, because it's something that can kill you very easily, yeah. very quickly. Yeah. Um. So you know, and having fallen off a cliff when I was five years old, you know, I've always had a natural respect for heights. Um. So that doesn't mean that I'm not scared of them, mm. but for me, the for me the you know venturing into those kind of vertical territories or close to them, um. You know, when you talk about going into the mountains, um. It begins with a desire to visit these places, um, you know, to, to experience what it's like on a cliff's um, edge or on a cliff or on a particular line, you know, going up a mountain. Um, to me, that's one of the most inspiring things um, about using my body in a way, you know, that I could get into positions that you just wouldn't think are possible. But when you're there and you're doing it and you're sitting on this ledge having lunch, you know, and you're dangling your feet 200 meters into the air, just directly down, and you're totally safe. You, you kind of go, "Wow, this is this is amazing." You know, like we tied in, we clipped into the wall. Like this is actually safe, relatively speaking, and we're in this incredible place. Um, so, but you know, I think for me, it's you know not just the movement; it's it's that kind of awe and that inspiration that takes hold when you when you look at a mountain. Um, when you are in the wilderness, when, when you're out there amongst, you know, the, the windy hills and, and you're out there and you see it and you just go, wow, I'm, I'm inspired right now. Just looking at that, you know? Mm, yeah. So do you, when, like you, me, when you started you, clipping yourself in and, um, onto mountain, onto walls and climbing high and stuff, did you start, did, did it get better and easier? Initially you were, um, mm. pretty, pretty scared to, on, on some of the knife edges or, or, or? Or it was always... it's, it's something you can chip away. Look, it's something you can chip away. I mean, there's definitely like some kind of natural um, ability that some people have, I think, of, you know, of not ignoring it, but overcoming that fear. Yeah, cool. Because um, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely a pro, it's something you've got to overcome. So like when I'm tying into a climb still, you know, like the, that, that dialogue is still going through my head. It's like, oh shit, look at it. It's so steep. Like, are we yeah. really going to go up there? Yeah. Holy moly. And then, you know, and then you're like, okay, well, we'll just, you know, give it a go and see how it goes. And then you start climbing up and, and that you, every time you got to go through this process of convincing yourself that, that what you are doing is not going to endanger your life, you know? And, and it depends on those little micro decisions on exactly how you put that piece of gear in a wall off, you know, how you're pulling on the rock, you know, making sure you're not pulling anything off the wall onto your partner just little things like that, you know, as you go mm. up and you're totally hyper aware of every single movement that you're taking. Mm. Um, and so, you know, and, the, and this is, this is vertical territory. And, and when you compound that with remoteness, um, which, you know, a lot of climbing in Tassie is, and even if you're not roped together with someone, even if you're just scrambling, a lot of the mountains here are quite precipitous. They're not that tall, but precipitous enough that you just want to take care when you're up there. 
And I guess where people come unstuck is, you know, going out there in bad weather. But that's one of the things you learn, you know, that the weather really affects your ability to do things in the mountains. And that's, that's your first kind of lesson of respect that you get taught when you start visiting the mountains is that you are going to get cold, you are going to get wet, and you're probably going to have a miserable time at some point. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah, can I just maybe draw your attention to uh, winter on the blade, mate? I, yeah, I, it seems like a good segue to it, start talking about uh, dangerous um, <laughs> was that peaks. one? Was that one of the most uh, dangerous peaks you've climbed? I suppose it is. Well, I mean, I'll put it in context. So Federation Peak is where we did that trip yep. um, that resulted in, in the film, yeah, Winter on the Blade. And I certainly didn't undertake the most dangerous roles in that, on that expedition. I mean, I went out there with the team. We camped at the base camp. I did climb Federation Peak um, to the summit, but not along the route that we made the film about, which right. is what our climbers did. Which was our via, climbers, via the blade, wasn't it? Uh, via Blade Ridge in the via northwest Blade face. Ridge, sorry, yes, yep. Um, okay. And, you know, so they climbed a 600-meter rock face in winter where it's wet yep. and there's, you know, barely any protection on it. So it's traditional climb. You know, there's no bolts or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, yep. I mean, what they did was an incredible feat. Um, but, you know, I did, I did climb Federation Peak in winter and that entails, you know, scrambling um, on vertical um, rock um, you know, with a backpack on, you know, 10, 15 kilos with a hundred meter drop underneath you. And, and there's one, one particular section where if you slipped, you literally would fall a hundred meters and you are on vertical rock and you're climbing and you're like, wow, this is pretty exposed. Yeah. Like I don't want to make a mistake here. Yeah. Uh, it's, and that's uh, the bushwalkers route. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, no surprise, I guess that I like that Sir Edmund Hillary's quote about the Federation Peak being Australia's only real mountain. Yeah. Well, it hasn't been tamed yet. There's no trains on it. Um, you know, there's a, it, it's, it's, it's so remote, it's so difficult to get to, um, that, that it, it's maintained that kind of element of adventure. Like anyone who, who ascends Federation Peak, you know, it's, it's a lifelong objective for, for a lot of walkers and a lot of climbers. Yeah, um, even. I like that. I think you had to wait several days. I think it was nine days or something just to get the weather right to go up there. And um, oh yeah, and I I think we watched. Um, I think one of the girls carrying that huge pack at the start. <laughs> I, I think Olivia, it, yeah. I think it was some yeah crazy footage. Um, really enjoy. And the, did you take any of the footage as well? Were you involved with any of the camera work? Uh, I took a few of the photos that ended up being shared. Um, I wasn't doing the filming. That okay. was Simon Bischoff's, um, Simon Bischoff and Olivia um, Page and Dan Haley that did the filming. And Cause I must say that, uh, yeah. yeah. Go on. Um, oh, look, I mean, that trip, that trip was just an incredible trip. Yeah, the seven of us went out there. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you know, we ended up, we, we had two weeks of food stashed out there already that we'd carried in previously with a team of volunteers, you know, a team of 12. Um, so, but we had to stretch that food on the expedition. Hey, like we provisioned for 14 and the trip ended up taking us 17 days because we spent the first 10 days sitting in our tent yeah. while it poured down with rain, like for 10 yeah. days straight. I got to Just, admit, yeah. I got to admit, uh, that when I saw the, the wet and the actual physical water that was, inside your tents um, <laughs> it was just 
phenomenal. Like that has got to, that's got to grind you down day after day. Yeah. And so this is where you learn lessons, you know. It's like I said, I said to Dan before the trip, I was like, oh yeah, so what tent are we taking? He's like, oh yeah, the minaret, you know, the MacPack minaret. I was like, oh yeah, sweet. No worries. He's like, oh yeah, I'll seal it up, you know, it's a bit of an old tent. So I was like, oh sweet. No, this guy's onto it. And then we get out there, we put the tent down the first night, the water's coming through the floor. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and Simon, so him and Olivia were sharing a tent. He bought a brand new single skin MSR. I think it was, or it might have been, I don't know. I can't remember the brand now. Yeah. But anyways, this um, single skin tent, and yeah, he let the water through. It wasn't like entirely. It was like uh, probably two or 3,000 mils rated, you know. No. And, and so they had, they, their tent was wet the whole time. And yeah. at one point, I think Olivia abandoned Simon, went to sleep with the other guys in the other tent that was dry. And I think that night, Simon had his mattress deflate as well. So he just had, uh. he was so ragged in the morning. <laughs> See, that when you start to mess with, there's what you were talking about before. And when you start yeah. to mess with people's sleep, and it's, it's a long time. I know I've been in, um, you know, not good places in not good conditions. And the night is very, very, very long, but I just, Oh man. It, and that just sounds horrific. <laughs> but then, you know, like we all went through our own little drama on that trip. Like there was, we all had at least one point where we're like, this is fucked. Um, but then, you know, when you're suffering together with other people, it makes it acceptable. When you're suffering on your own, it really sucks. But then when there's other people who kind of, turns funny like when your friend falls into the bog hole and they're waist deep in the mud <laughs> well, i saw some of that footage in the in the trailer and or even in the film um i think it's um what was that um i wrote it down oh mark mark savage he steps off this um little walking trail and goes all the way to his waist in the thick stickiest disgusting <laughs> slop and he just standing there and he just his face is in shock and then he just kind of laughs and, and, oh man, everyone's swearing. <laughs> it's just full on, but yeah, it was, um, those conditions and correct me if I'm wrong, but was that, uh, cause you had some weather expert on the film talking about the weather and yeah. it was at the worst or the heaviest rainfall in winter ever or something close to that yeah he, he said yeah he said that those three months of may june july were the wettest ever recorded in tasmania um that <laughs> was, was the Nigel. one the one winter that you wanted to do the trip mm. well that's right and you know i mean that was the summer where tassie had that drought where the dams got real low because the basslink cable was broken so um yeah well yeah anyways it was a long story that one but it was a really dry summer and then it, when the when the drought broke at the end of April, it rained for two months straight. Wow. And we were going out at the tail end of that. So the thing that amazed me was that the track was no different to April, uh, which, you know, they both times they were just so, even at the end of the drought, that track had waist-deep mud on it, wow. you know, water on it. Is that right? And yeah, because it's on a floodplain, you know. So yeah, it's just it's just that track is always wet. It doesn't matter what time of year you go. That's the amazing thing about it. But then when we went out there, it was the wettest it's been in a long time. Um, but yeah, it was just phenomenal the amount of water that was out there. 
And we thought, yeah, you know, middle of winter in Tassie, we might get a bit of snow, might be a bit of ice climbing. You know, the boys brought their ice axes. Yeah. And it was just wet rock. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was not. Yeah, I didn't see a, any snow whatsoever. It was incredible. Uh, so, and this is what I mean. Like when you plan a trip, you have an idea for what the trip's going to be like. But when you actually go and do the trip, that's when you find out what the trip's going to be like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and talking about planning the trip, how did this, uh, well, I'd say ridiculous idea come to you? Was, was it an epiphany? Was it a, what point? Oh, look, it, I mean, the idea kind of came on the, on a spur for, um, uh, it was, what was it? It was the, I think it was a North Face Australian Geographic Adventure Grant that they put out once a year. I was like, it wasn't a noble aspiration or anything. I was just like, <laughs> shit. It's like, man, they're going to give that 10,000 grand. Oh, sorry, not 10,000 bucks to do an adventure. I was like, how are we going to get that? Um, but then, you know, oh, in, the I love your mind, in, in the back of my mind, I was like already thinking about my next trip. You know, I wanted to do this big traverse of Tasmania. Yeah, and I yeah. thought, oh, well, if we can get 10 grand for it, well, let's go for it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but then, but then that idea didn't really catch, you know, because I remember I met, I met Dan Haley in a pub uh, a few weeks beforehand and he was a, a cameraman who ended up hanging off, you know, the top of Federation Peak on a hundred meter long rope to film the climbers coming up in the dark, you know, on the, on the mm. Northwest face. Uh, and when I met Dan, he just struck me as a wild man, you know, he's got wild hair and like rock solid dude. Just like instantly I was like, I'd trust my life to this dude. Yep. You know, if we were out in the bush, I was like totally 100% about this guy. And so I was like, hey, Dan, you want to do a trip? You know, he's like, oh, what is it? I was like, oh, let's do a traverse of Tasmania in winter along the ridge lines, along the skyline of Tassie. He's like, all right, I mean, let's meet. And so I went to his place and I called Simon Bischoff. And I knew he was like a rock climbing guru and a really good uh, filmmaker. Um, you know, I've seen some of these short videos about some, um, some of his friends, you know, um, climbing and I just thought, wow, this guy's got some mad skills with the camera. Um, you know, he might be interested in making a film about this trip and then we can pitch the idea, you know, and then be like, Hey guys, we're going to do this trip. And then, so he kind of gained momentum from there, but initially Simon said, Oh no, no way. Like bushwalking, that's already my thing, you know? Um, sounds horrendous. Yeah. But then Dan was like, yeah, dude, I'm in. So I was like, all right. And then I got this idea, right. Cause I knew that Simon tried to do a film about Federation pig a couple of years before. That's how I actually knew him. You know, he said to me at the time, oh, do you want to help us carry some ropes out there? Cause we're going to, you know, do this film out of Federation pig. And that project crumbled. I think there was a bit of a breakdown there, um, with the people he was planning it with. And so I knew that he had these, you know, this, this idea to make a film about Federation Peak. So I thought, well, hey, Simon, what do you think if we went out in winter and we filmed some guys climbing up Blade Ridge? And I sent him in this Dombrovskis photo from 1981 when the mountains like plastered in snow. It's this beautiful aerial <laughs> shot. And you look at this picture and it's the obvious line and it's so aesthetic. It's this beautiful line. It's this 400 meter of titanic blade or flake of rock that's kind of detached <laughs> from the main peak and it's got these three horizontal steps in it um it's it literally looks like a rusty old knives blade you know but it's yeah. 400 meters tall and it's the most incredible kind of remote gla uh, glacial amphitheater around federation peak you know with this 
thick scrub in the valleys and the whole thing's plastered in white. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and that was it. The trick was on. Oh, yeah, there were some accusations being thrown around in one of the trailers I watched about uh, about you lying to people to get them to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was implied, but like, look, I mean, I um, I think it's unfortunate how it played out with Nick, um, for you know, for Nick Grant on the trip because I remember he only had um, he had two weeks off the whole year. He was studying to be a paramedic, and yeah. um, I think you know he really wanted to ice climb it, or you know, at least like yeah. winter winter climbing conditions. He's Nick's not a bushwalker, you know. He doesn't enjoy going through scrub and and all that he was there to climb it and he was keen to climb it you know yep um but when we got out there it's just pissing down rain and then he actually <laughs> he had to go back you know he had to go back oh, a bit no. earlier than us so he didn't he didn't actually get to stick around for the climb oh man so um, can you just put something in context for us real quick sorry to interrupt what's the um so from where you park your cars to get to the base of where you're going to start climbing how many days or a hike is that just to get to that point oh look like most people will take two to three days right to get to federation peak um but there will be probably some of the hardest two or three days in your life yep um depending on the size of the pack you carry really because you know we we were carrying 40 kilogram packs each yeah um because of how much gear, you know, the filming gear, the um, group gear, the climbing gear, and all the food, you know, for two weeks. Um, uh, the poo tubes, you know, all that kind of thing, you know, it all adds up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you, um, so, you saved um, you saved weight by not carrying enough uh, bags for the poo tube. <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we ran out of bags, so you'd have to you'd have to do two poos in a bag, and then in the meantime, you're just hanging from a tree. Otherwise, you know, the little mouse at the campsite. If you just sit it on a platform, one morning we woke up and it was all well, the shit was dragged all over the platform. <laughs> oh no! Seriously, <laughs> this little mouse oh. tried to get into it. Oh, the cheeky little thing. Oh. Um, well, look, no, the track out there is is, is is not a track at all. Like when you think of walking, you're not walking. You're stepping over logs, you're sliding underneath logs that have, you know, come down across the yeah. track, you're climbing on vertical tree roots, you're wading through knee-deep mud. Um, it's not it's it's not a track. It's it's a path that's been worn by many bushwalkers going there and the occasional, you know, branch getting cut along the track. But there's no, mm. there's no, yeah, it, there's a path to follow. What was the point? A, there's a yeah. spectacular piece of footage that really sums up what you're describing here. And I think they referred to it as um, Mossy, Mossy Ridge or Mossy something. Do you remember what um, that place was called? Yeah. So basically, the track. Yeah, you follow a floodplain. Yeah. Um, of yeah, mostly across button grass, tea tree, scrub, with pockets of you know gondwana rainforest, and then you get to the base of Moss Ridge. Moss Ridge. And that's, right. Yeah. Moss Ridge, yeah, and then that's the path. So it takes about a day and a half to get there to the base of it. Right. And then from there, you Moss Ridge is your line up to Federation Peak. Right. Um, but just imagine, you know, prehistoric, ancient uh, rainforest, temperate yeah. rainforest, the thickest, most beautiful you can imagine. Um, just this tangled growth of, you know, oh, and vines it was. It and trees. Totally was. If you, just to frame it for the for the listeners, it was. So there's a long shot down almost a tunnel of sorts and you guys are climbing through these branches towards the cameraman 
and the lights behind you. And it, it literally is, it looks like somebody's gone through with a chainsaw and felled about 14 trees all in different directions and then you guys are trying to make your way mm. through them. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a tangled undergrowth, you know, and it's so beautiful though, like those mosses and those lichens, you know, some of those some of those plants have been on this planet for two or 300 million years, you know, some of the oldest plants on land live in this forest. And so you're talking about walking through, you know, ancestry that goes back um, a very long time indeed. And then eventually, you know, you climb out of it and you see these titanic pieces of rock tilted onto their sides, you know, nearly vertical that you're climbing up towards. And that's, you know, that's the rocks leading up to Federation Peak um, and Eastern Arthur's. And it's just, it's, you feel like you're entering a lost world when you go up there. Yeah, there's uh, something I wanted to ask you was, I think it was about a month before, from by my calculations, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, a month before you guys left for your trip, a lady fell at Federation Peak to her death. Um, do you remember that event? I do, yeah, of course I do. Yeah. yeah. So it was a couple of months couple of months before we did the provisioning trip. So I think she I think she fell in February or March. Okay. Um and you know, I was I was leading the group of people I was taking out there. Um, you know, it's my idea, I planned the trip. Yeah. Like it was my trip, you know. So if something happened, you know, I, I would have felt responsible for it. So I had to ask myself that question. I was like, Am I okay about taking this many people out there? Um, and, you know, it was understood that everyone's there under their own responsibility. Um, but, yeah, like, you know, what the, I think the lady lost the track um, that I, I, what I've heard and went down the wrong gully and, yeah, steep terrain and she fell. Yeah. Um, she, yeah. And, you know, that was, a, that was a possibility that had to be acknowledged. And so, you know, you just kind of take the precautionary measures of just making sure that everyone comes on the trip is up for it. So was that, um, was that uh, event after everybody had basically signed up for your adventure? Did that, did that happen afterwards? Um, oh, look, kind of. I think it was still, we're forming the team and we haven't had all the volunteers yet. Right. So that was definitely something that was sitting on people's, you know, mind, I think. Yep. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's, you accept it. Like, it's not that we're going out there because it's dangerous, but you have an objective and you accept that there's certain risks associated with that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you're not willing to accept those risks, then you shouldn't be going out there. Yeah, and I think uh, a medal should be given to Olivia just based on that comment <laughs> right there. She openly says, and I did read it somewhere, I thought it might have been exaggerated, but then she said in the film that she'd never even done an overnight hike. <laughs> then, she, then she follows you uh, you bunch of clowns out there for... What? Well, that's right. But then, you know, at least we knew what we we're doing out there. Like, I think um, I'm not saying that, you know, everyone who goes out there um, is is competent, <laughs> like from what I've seen from other people that I've met. But if you go out there, at least go with someone that can initiate you through that process, you know, yep. um, who knows who knows how to make the right decisions. Yeah. Um, you know, you got to have at least one person, and we had multiple people. Yeah, you on, did. You certainly had. Yeah, it was like a, um, a good group. Yeah, like Mark, Mark Savage was great to have along on the trip because he he's been an outdoor educator here in Taz for twenty years. Oh so, right, yeah. 
so, you know, I mean, when I say I was leaving the trip, like I was definitely deferring to him in terms of, you know, there's, you know, like if he said to me, hey, no, we shouldn't be doing that, I'd be, I would have been like, oh, yeah, for sure. Like, just go with what you reckon. Yeah, right. Because he's, like, he was the senior member in the sense of, you know, experience. And so I thought that, you know, if we had him, him on the trip, at least, you know, that gave me some kind of a guarantee that we're not going to do anything too stupid. Yeah. Because um, he was on the trip, you know. Was it Simon, the uh, cameraman, who who wrangled Mark into the expedition? Well, Dan Haley contacted him initially um, and said to him, hey, Mark, because um, Dan was a student of, um, of uh, Mark from TAFE. Yeah, now they're a student. Oh, and, I see. Um, yeah, so Mark taught Dan at TAFE, you know, um, and so Dan just said to uh, Savo, yeah, that's his nickname, Mark Savage. So we call him Savo. Hey, Savo, we're doing this trip to Fed Peak to climb at Blade Ridge in winter. Do you want to come? And he was like, oh, that's odd because we didn't know this at the time, but he had tried to climb Blade Ridge in winter 24 years previously. Yeah, that's fantastic. And they, shut, they got shut down big yeah. time. Yeah. They spent three weeks in their tents waiting out this blizzard, and the day they walked out was the first time the mountain came out of the cloud. Incredible. <laughs> and so I asked Mark, I was like, hey, um, what do you think our chances are of accomplishing our objective, you know, of actually climbing the blade? You know, it was going to be yeah, him and, um, and uh, Mick, Grant, uh, Mick, um, Mick um, Wright. Um, and he said, well, our chances of success, um, less than 1%. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought he was joking, but he was being dead serious. He seemed like a solid dude. Like when his demeanor and his attitude throughout the footage, at least from, you know, what the viewers get to see, like he just seemed like a rock solid guy. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, Mark, you know, he had a lifetime of experience and, and just a, an attitude of, of graciousness, you know, of accepting what you find out there and being okay with it, even if it's not what you expected. Um, you know, I, I remember he was just so content hanging out in the tents, doing his cryptic crosswords and just enjoying <laughs> life, you know, just having a good laugh about things. And you're like, oh, this is miserable. And Mark's having such a good time. How does he do it? <laughs> Um, and, you know, he did it because he had, like, you know, the perfect tent and the perfect sleeping set up, and he was, like, nice and comfortable and just had, you know, like a relatively, you know, like just packed minimalist. And he just had this attitude of, of being okay with what, what was happening, you know, even if it wasn't great necessarily. Yeah, that's great. It must have been good to have somebody like that on the trip that you could look over and say, well, he's still smiling. Um, I need to find out what that formula is. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's right, you know, and, and for a lot of, you know, us, yeah, it was a, a steep learning curve on the trip, like Olivia, you know, never done a bushwalk before, um, you know, th getting thrown in the deep end, like, big time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things, but then, yeah, you kind of, you know, you grow as a group in, through that process, um, you know, go through this ordeal together, and, um and yeah, it's this incredible experience, you know, when, when you come out, I remember we finished the trip and yeah, we'd been out there for 17 days and the walkout was just heinous. Like we had so much gear, we couldn't physically carry everything. So we had to shuttle um, loads back and forth. Um, yeah. So like, so like Mark and Mick and Dan pretty much walked the track three times on the way out. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you pick up a load, you walk ahead, you drop it down, you go back, you pick up another pack, um, and you know, do that. Um, so it wasn't enough to walk out. <laughs> you had to walk out three times. <laughs> oh, that's so wow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you think you go through this amazing uh, physical, mental journey to get to the base camp. Then you had this amazing high of the guys actually getting to climb Blade Ridge and summit, and then that's not the end of the trip. You, you've got to then turn around and walk back through that slop to get back to your car. Well, that's right. And, you know, every single step, you know, like there's still a lot of steps you got to take to get out of there. So the trip's not over until you, you know, the trip's really not over when you get home, but, you know, that's, that, that is the end of the trip in a ways. And when we did get out, I remember we, we, we got a beer and we got some um, chips in, um, in um, Jeepston on the way home. And uh, this little, you know, little town, and and we got in there, and we're sitting on we're sitting on this sofa, and I remember drinking this beer and just thinking, where did this beer come from? This is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> you did mention in that film actually, you were quite specific about readjusting to outside life and how maybe the words difficult that is once you've been immersed in that experience for so much so long and then all of a sudden being transported back into like you say um a couch where you can sit and drink a beer and not get rained on what's what's that like i mean this is um you know obviously you've done several big adventures like this even longer but how do you deal with being immersed in the wilderness and then very quickly being shoved back into the hustle and bustle of life well the return is the most difficult part of any journey and it's the bit that doesn't get mentioned you know um when you return yeah that's where you've got to take stock and because you know on these trips there's so much growth there's so much experience you know being instilled into you that it changes it changes the way you think about just your day-to-day stuff so when you get back you feel like you know you've changed and and that change has got to manifest in some way and it takes you know it takes time to process on how that you know, how the lessons are going to kind of um you know be distilled into into your everyday life um and it might come with you know decisions that you're going to make that you know you weren't ready to make before but when you come back it just becomes clear what it is you have to do with you know the way you live your life and the decisions that you make every day um and i think that's the, the value you know of doing these more difficult trips is that you do learn things that you can't learn in any other way um but then it can be it can be challenging you know that's the thing about it when you come back um i don't know if you you know all all the people out there have been on a long overseas trip and you've you know you just cut loose or whatever you went to south america for six months um, and chewed on coca leaves or whatever you did. And then you come back and you're like, fuck, my bank balance is zero. I've got to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> and it's shit. And you're like, fuck. Um, and then, you know, it's like, how do you deal with that? And that's that, that, that's that process of going, okay, well, all right. Fuck, all right, let's get, yeah, let's take stock and figure this out. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely struggle with the... Um, the, the all the sensory stuff so everything's so much more noisy so many more interruptions um cars and and uh 
you know, up until recently, I had to commute an hour each way um, to my job uh, near the city. And I remember coming back off a trip, I think it was last year, and that very first morning where I caught the train and then I got off the train and it was a, a 10 minute walk to the office and just being bombarded by these, the smell of fumes and honking cars and, and just noise just really threw me off. It was quite incredible. Well, what happens, I think, is when you're out in the bush, you know, you become, you, it raises your awareness um, and it grows your awareness being out in nature. Um, and so you become more perceptive, um, you pay more attention, you know, you're more present, um, when you come back. And so the things that usually block out or you ignore, they manifest, you know, that you observe them and you see them for the first time almost. And you go, holy shit, well, this is, I can't believe I live in this world. <laughs> How have I put up with it so far? You know, and you come back. Yeah. Um, but then it, it, that's valuable too, because then that tells you something. You know, about about the way that we're living our life, you know, living the way we're living in cities and the way we're using motorized vehicles and just, our, you know, our lifestyles, you know, have changed so much in the last hundred years even. Um, and, you know, our bodies have evolved to do certain things like climb trees and catch your own food and move about. And what people are doing now is sitting down by computers and sitting in cars and just not using your body as as you as it's kind of evolved to do, and the, it causes certain problems. So when you know you go away and you have a physically active kind of lifestyle for you know a longer trip, three months, and then you come back and you have a sedentary job, mm. all of a sudden you know it takes its toll, and you and you realize and you notice this, and you think, well, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely it's food for thought, and I think that anyone that spends time out there starts even short amounts of time you start to discover these things and you kind of almost um realize how septic this uh life is that we've built around ourselves with technology and everything else um and then you know i guess on following that thought is you know you just become so grateful to have these natural places to you know escape to almost um, is, you know, like I don't like using that term escapism because we need to stay connected to our everyday world. You know, that's, that's the world that, that, that is the real world. You know, when people say to me, oh, you know, now we go back to the real world and it's like, well, no, no, you know, no, no. This, is, this is, this is the real world. Yeah. But then, yeah. but then, yeah, it can be difficult, you know, it can be challenging. And I think if anything, being out in the bush teaches you that it's okay. It's okay to accept the challenge. And to rise up to it and to say, I'm going to face this wholeheartedly and I'm going to do my best here, you know, because I've got no other choice. All right, guys, we're going to leave it there for this episode. When we come back in episode 18, we'll have the other half of this podcast with Andy. I hope you're enjoying it so far. He's absolutely amazing to talk to and I guarantee you he has plenty more cool stories to tell. So, yeah. When episode 18 drops, you'll get the second half of that. Enjoy. Thanks, guys. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, we'd really appreciate your ratings and comments if you can spare the time. If you'd like to know more about Hike or Die TV and keep track of our adventures around Australia, 
make sure you drop by hikeordie.com. That's where you'll find all the information you'll need to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or Pinterest. As always, we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.